0: Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me as always is Cameron. Hello. Huh? Guess what I'm doing. Uh, uh, what?
1: I'm, you can't see it, I'm wiggling my fingers. And, uh, if you look down at your feet, Michael, you'll see... I have summoned a swarm of uh, weasels. Oh, oh no.
0: Oh no. They're getting you. Oh no, look.
1: They're taking your chickens. Uh,
0: not my chickens.
1: And and you can't do anything about it.
0: Uh, uh, weasels in the corn. I'm, I'm the Dark Man. No.
1: Would uh would this book be better? I'm going to throw this out at the beginning. But do you think Randall Flagg would be well performed if someone just said, "I'm the Dark Man." <laughs> I'm Randall Flag and I'm the Dark Man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like A really like milk toast Middle manager at a bank mm-hmm. I'm the yes. dark man I'm the Dirk man <laughs> <laughs> My name is Randall Flagg. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know it's very funny we obviously
1: both have our take On uh, what that character would be When we did those voices but yours is Decidedly uh midwestern <laughs> In a way that mine is not and that's very funny To me <laughs> um uh, uh yeah, well we can get into it later. Uh, you know what?
0: I'm gonna let you keep going here. <laughs> oh oh, because we're jumping right into it. Uh, today, uh, we are talking about Stephen King's 1978 novel The Stand, uh, which features a man named Randall Flagg who is also the Dark Man, and also features some weasels in some corn, and
1: 130 other characters. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've obviously read this book before. I think I've read this book multiple times before. Mm -hmm. I've read this book probably, I believe, twice before. Um, And maybe three times, but at least twice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I cannot keep any of the characters in this novel straight. Like when it some often, Mm -hmm. even at the end of the book, when it's clicking back and forth between these people, Mm -hmm. I I have to really seriously think, Okay, so this is Stu. (laughs) He's from Texas. He thinks these things about the world. Okay, I'm ready to do it. (laughs) So I I really, I I might struggle a little bit during this conversation, but I, I, uh, dear listener, I encourage you to be uh, patient with me. Because Michael has to be. He has no choice. Mm -hmm. But I
0: encourage you to do it. I Um, mean, as a person who can hold the entire cast effortlessly in my head and define every single character and their names and their wants and their desires, uh, it is a lot for me to put up with. But...
2: Mm -hmm. I manage.
1: Uh, (laughs) Well, and that's made even, I want to say, uh, more difficult maybe by the version of the novel that we have read.
0: Yeah. So I talked about this last time, but I assume that the previous uh, times that you've read this book, you did not read this version, which is the first printing or not really the, the exact first printing. And I'll get into some textual differences, I guess. But um, mm-hmm. this this was the first version of the text of this novel that was printed. Stephen King delivers a fifteen hundred page or thereabouts a manuscript to Doubleday and they make him cut about 500 to 600 ish pages Uh, so the first version of the novel that gets published the one that we have read for this episode is that first version with the cut content Uh, this goes out of print because in 1990 Stephen King because he is now Stephen King right Uh, powerhouse brand Stephen King he gets the stand complete and uncut uh, released with all of the additional material and that's the if you're going to go buy a copy of the stand today that's that's the version of the book you're going to get
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because you can't get this version anymore. Right. The version that we have read. I'm I'm very sorry, uh, your listener, but if you are going to try to replicate our experience, Michael and I both had to pay somewhere in the realm of forty dollars for a. I was going to say pocket paperback, but it's kind of a thick thick book, so you can't. But you know, a standard size trade paperback. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, mine fell apart halfway through reading it. Mm. Yep. So, uh, no resell value on this thing. <laughs>
0: Mine has a, a, a cracked spine that has been uh, pretty well-mended, actually. But, like, it still made me very nervous reading it. I just started losing pages about halfway through. Oh, geez.
1: Um but, uh, but, yeah. So, so but, and I will say, I was... I was I, I was about to say in this very sentence, say pleasantly surprised. I don't know if pleasantly su- surprised, but certainly surprised about the differences between the two because they're significant. Mm-hmm. It turns out cutting 500 pages out of a 15, or cutting a third of a novel actually does change it quite a bit.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, do, uh,
0: can you say, I know you did some research, Michael. Can you say a little bit about why the things that were cut um, were cut? There is not a lot of rationale given for why in the materials that I have read. Um... Really, it seems to so holding in mind what I remember about the complete and uncut text. What seems to me mostly to have been cut is uh, meanders, right? Like little, little, like uh, mm-hmm. small sections regarding minor characters. Uh, basically, the I would looking at both versions of this text, um, I would say that the the original text of the novel is very much um, the story of the central characters. Uh, and it seems that a, a lot of stuff that I remember from reading the complete and uncut text that is totally missing here is stuff that comes from the first third of the novel, which is about the plague and the super flu. And we'll get to all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it is as you say, it's it's a very different novel. And it's different in a way that was very interesting to me because at first, I liked it more in a way that maybe surprised me, and then I very much did not like it as the book went on. Or not like very much. It wasn't like I hated it, <laughs> but uh, I realized truly that uh, despite what I think is improved in in the uh, sort of slimming down of, of this massive baggy book... Uh, you nevertheless end up losing a lot of the stuff that I remember being kind of neat about it, if that makes sense. I don't know if your experience was similar.
1: Yes, and and I think that some of the—I agree with you. And I also think that some of the conversation that we've seen on Discord and on Twitter around this novel really demonstrates that this is a, a wide phenomenon. But, and the reason I say that is that almost everything about this book that people have referenced to us— as things that they remember from it, or things that were, you know, kind of problematic or difficult, and we're going to talk about a lot of that stuff uh, when we get here. Um, but, but the the cultural imagination of this novel, almost everything that people talk about is not in the original yeah. version. Almost all of it is cut content that was reintroduced. And I'll say I had the exact same experience when I sat down to read the novel and I was thinking about some of the scenes. So, for example, there's a very, you know, kingy kind of scene, for lack of a better word, in the cut or the uncut version, the 1990 version, in which you're kind of like zooming around the United States and you're seeing these little paragraphs, Mm -hmm. you know, about individual people in their last moments of life and things like that as they're dying of the superflu, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And uh, mm-hmm. that's not in this. Um, the things that I associate stylistically the most with Stephen King, actually, things that I have praised, you know, in our episode on Salem's Lot, in particular, his kind of cinematic Stephen Kingy kind of thing, that's entirely absent here. And so I, I understand, I, I think, I understand why he wanted to reintroduce everything. But I think you're 100% right that it makes it a worse novel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and admittedly, I think this might just be a bad novel.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I don't know what your first experience, how, how were you brought to The Stand? Because I'm going to imagine that it was maybe slightly different than the way that I came to it.
1: Um, I, I, I knew, so when I was maybe, I want to say The Stand, uh, Obviously, mm-hmm. I, I believe, you know, this is my my personal history with Stephen King, as I've said before. I believe that the first Stephen King mm-hmm. novel I read was Firestarter. And then I kind of just read whatever I could get my hands on after that. And I think The Stand is in, you know, the first five or so of those. Uh, I remember reading it early, and I think that I probably read it because it was like... uh, Well, because I had a copy of it. Um, I think my grandmother had a copy. And I would not say that my grandmother is particularly, like, a reader. You know, she didn't really sit around and read novels. I think she was part of a... um, uh a, what do you call it like a book club at some point um you know where they send you the novel every month and I know that's how Stephen King did a lot of sales especially mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s and so she had this and maybe like Dolores Claiborne and a, a couple other uh, Stephen King hardcovers um and so I think I just got it from her I was like yeah I want I want the Stephen King book and I have it it had the classic cover uh the good one right the one yeah. that just King things um uh, uh
0: key art is referencing Oh, yeah, that's an important thing. If you're a person who listens to this podcast but doesn't really care about Stephen King in the particular and has no idea what's going on in the, the cover art for this podcast, uh, that is based off the original mm-hmm. cover art. What of you, the stand.
1: These uh, mythical mm-hmm. figures fighting. Um, and I definitely picked up the stand with the cover on it thinking, hell, yeah, there's going to be it's This is Stephen King mm-hmm. and medieval combat, a fantasy novel. Hell, yeah. Um, and I had, maybe I'd already read eyes of the uh-huh. dragon at that point too. And so I was like keyed in for Stephen King being a fantasy guy. And, uh, I got something that was way, way different. So that's all to say, I, I found it kind of organically, uh, and was not directed to it. You know, I didn't know, I didn't know its reputation, for example. I didn't know anything about that other than it's a Stephen King book. It's one that I have access to. It's got a cool cover. The end. How were you
0: introduced, Michael? I've already said that I, you know, my first Stephen King book was thinner, um, and my mom was a a Stephen King reader, and The Stand was my mom's favorite Stephen King book. This was what she told me, Um, Mm. and she told me her story of reading The Stand, and it was, you know, when she was, she would have been a late teenager, early 20s, whenever this book came out. Um, And she talked about how she started reading it one day over over like, you know, the winter or whatever. It was like she was on a, a school break. She started reading it. And even even in its cut form, this book is like, you know, 800 and some pages long. Like it's still a, it's still the size of a fantasy doorstop novel. She started reading it one mm-hmm. afternoon and then read through the night until she was, like, almost falling asleep in bed. Like, the only reason she stopped reading was because she could not keep her eyes open. So she went to sleep and then woke up and finished the book that evening. Like, that is how, like, enwrapped my mother was by this book. So I hear this, and I think, damn, that's got to be a great book. So I search out uh, The Stand to read, and something else that is very important for my version of this story... Is that I was much more online than you. And by this point, mm-hmm. I had by the time I was reading the stand, I had gotten uh, wrapped up in Stephen King fandom on early 2000s Internet.
1: I just I wish I could go back and yeah. interview this Michael.
0: <laughs> like like 13 uh-huh. year old Michael on stephen on king the fan. uh the like stephen king uh listserv everyone's talking about what books they're reading it's like me some like random teenagers but mostly it's like people who are going to become what we would think of as wine moms <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> but also the thing that you need to you need the thing you need to keep in mind right is that these are like self-selected stephen king fans so these are people who like uh well, the word that has come around recently is stands. Right, like they mm-hmm. they are people who and I'm I'm not even like these are people I I was friendly with, right, but just in general, right, mm-hmm. their method for getting through the world is to sort of assume Stephen King is right and good, right? Anything that deviates from that needs to be mm-hmm. sort of like reckoned into the fact that Stephen King is basically the best person you could ever be. Um and there was a lot of I, the the thing that I'm trying to get around to, right, is that the stand mm-hmm. is kind of like scripture in, in this Kind of community, right? Like, because depending on and this is, I think, in general, more diverse, but sort of depending on where you're seated in kind of the Stephen King universe and the Stephen King fandom, there are a couple of books that uh, have the greatest claim to being his what we might call his masterpiece or his magnum opus, right? The best thing he has ever written. Mm -hmm. One of them is this book. Uh, The other one is probably like the Dark Tower series. And then the sort of third option um, is probably it. Yeah, yeah. But The Stand is the one that comes first and in some way has kind of that weight behind it. Um, And also it gets kind of uh, its own sort of mystique precisely because Stephen King went back and re-released it, right? It was the book that he felt so strongly about that he was like, I need to re-release this book with all of this content that got cut. I read The Stand um at age 13 and i'm like there's some really good stuff in here and also i don't think i really like the book that much but i can't say that
1: <laughs> to no to yeah. you can't say it to anyone you can't say it at home you can't say it on yeah you know, on your online forum of friends you're you're being censored
0: and that is why uh as of today i am leaving the stephen king fandom and starting my own sub stack where I tell it like it is yeah
1: <laughs> and no one and no one can edit you and you and and you edit this show so I can't even cut this out like I normally
0: would when people talk bad about the stand anytime it comes up I just cut it out uh yeah my feelings toward the stand um are influenced by this kind of like particular context in which I came to it and which uh there there are things that I still really like in the complete and uncut text but I felt like uh the book overall didn't uh, it, I mean, it sort of underwhelmed me. And so, coming back and reading this original text, my first reaction was like, oh, when there's an editor working on this, this book actually clicks together in a really nice way, and it's kind of, it feels more streamlined. And then, as you said, this might just be a bad novel. You hit the midway point, and I do not care. Like, it is actually harder for me to care about this novel by the end than it was the complete and uncut text by the end, right? So in this weird way that the the complete and uncut uncut text, despite making the overall pacing actually worse, gave me more good stuff to like.
1: Yeah, I think it is 100% a novel in fragments, and the the fragments um, are kind of weighted, like 1 through 10, and I think that they, they start being, uh, no, at the beginning, they're all tens. And that's why this novel is so cool. And I think that's why a lot of people like it. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, it's like all ones, you know. Um, and yeah, I just, you know, I, I, I think I think it's a book with a lot of cool pieces in it. But I think that as a novel, it really doesn't hold up uh, or it doesn't. It's hard for it to stand up on its own. And obviously, people have a lot of different opinions about this. I, I wasn't mad that I read it or anything. Um, I, I was happy to revisit it. And, and in a couple of years, when we go and read The Stand Uncut, when we get to 1990 and in the, the uh, uh, Kingology, king chronology, something like that. Um, uh, then we will, uh, you know, we'll revisit that and see how it works. But I think I'm, I think I'm in the exact same spot where you are, where I think the pieces of the uncut version, I just like more than the pieces that are here. And part of that has to do with the plot, um, which I guess we can talk about, uh, now do we want to do a five-sentence summary? Yeah, sure thing. This one's on you, dude. <clears throat> I, I I see very helpfully you put in the notes here five sentence summary, and then you put uh, my initials for me to mm-hmm. write that in, and then I did not write anything in. Okay. So this is right off the dome. <clears throat> I need to, I, I got to get my hand up so I can count these sentences. Mm-hmm. There is a super flu that kills almost everyone in the United States. Okay. Remaining is a ragtag group of individuals, some good, some bad, who are drafted into a war between evil and its opposite. <laughs> I didn't want to use "good" two times in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. Once, 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 um, uh, you know, friend of the show Joel. Once, once he mapped my sentence summaries. I, I had to really think about what words I'm using here. All right, so this is sentence three. The good people follow someone named Mother Abigail, and they go to Colorado. Uh, semicolon. The bad people go to Las Vegas, and they follow someone named Randall Flagg. Fourth sense. Some good things happen, and some bad things happen, but ultimately, this is all headed toward a very contrived feeling conflict mm-hmm. that is faded mythologically. In a seemingly unrelated yet potentially God-related incident, (laughs) a nuclear weapon goes off in Las Vegas, killing many of the main characters of the novel. The end. Yeah. Also, there's a Shire part at the end. Or the scouring of the Shire. (laughs) That's my sixth sense, I guess. Sorry. Yep. But that's it. And I would say 50% of the novel is taken up with that first sentence. Yes. The, this, is, this is ultimately about, this, this book is a book that is about a super flu that kills off a lot of people. And, and maybe this is the other thing too, and, and you probably can say more about this than I can. So I've always um, been told slash read places, and I think you shared a, like a clipping from a interview or something with me on uh, mm-hmm. Discord uh, a few days ago about Stephen King writing this to make his own American version of the Lord of the Rings. Yes. And I can't get that out of my head because Mm -hmm. it makes so much sense. Do you know any more about that or is that just the... Do you know the the same amount that I do about this?
0: There are a couple of uh, things that converge uh, for Stephen King to write The Stand. It's it's one of these uh, situations where Stephen King has like three or four ideas that he's constantly kind of like at any given point in time right he has like three or four ideas that he's kind of like tossing around in his head like oh this could be a story and this could be a novel and so on like images or characters or hooks and he's sort of tossing them around and as he's tossing them around over the course of a couple years they start hooking together in weird ways so what is probably the strangest thing about the stand one you are correct about the american lord of the rings bit uh two uh this book started as uh his attempt to write about the patty Hearst kidnapping <laughs> What? so that's where we start and we end in lord of the rings um,
2: <laughs> what Steve. yeah
0: um so uh just, just to take a moment, uh Cameron, can you get can you give us the lowdown on Patty Hearst?
1: Yeah, Patty Hearst was the heir to the Hearst Empire one of the heirs to the Hearst Empire and was kidnapped um maybe in the nineteen sixties yeah. by the Symbionese Liberation Army. And uh, kind of a famous case or one of the mm-hmm. the cases that's used to talk about Stockholm Syndrome. Um, you know, and we now know that Stockholm Syndrome is uh, as much fiction as it is reality, perhaps more fiction than it is reality, but um, she's captured by these, uh, this, this uh, military sect. And uh, as they're continuing to do crime, there people are like taking photos of them and there's Patty Hearst doing, doing crime with them. And so, um, you know, it's very famous American case of, um, of a, famous figure kind of american royalty i mean you know the hearst publishing empire uh was one of the most profitable and largest you know kind of tycoon businesses um in the united states in the earliest half of the 20th century and so uh just a very kind of kind of like the kidnapping of the Mm -hmm. um lindbergh baby something like that, right? So it's this kind of American aristocracy gone awry. And also kind of the the other side of it, I think, is it gets taken as the kind of the mm-hmm. rotting heart of America in the 1960s. You know, here is the American aristocracy um, besieged by, um, you know, uh, militaristic violent forces beyond it, beyond the pale of, you know, the liberal order of the world. Um, so, you know. It's all of those things. So it's it's very interesting that these two things are running into one another because Mm -hmm. it's an American myth mythological moment, I think. Yes. Running into (laughs) apparently the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So so Stephen King, um, when he is in Boulder, he is working on this novel about the Patty Hearst case, like you just said. And it's uh, he says in Dan's Macabre, which I'm not going to quote too much from because we're going to read it eventually, because that's his nonfiction novel where he talks a little bit about this stuff. Um, The Hearst thing happens in 1974. Got it. A little bit lighter than I thought. Yeah. So like four or five years later, but still like she it's it's very uh, weighted because she is a college student living in Berkeley.
2: Mm mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So and we're post Manson. So uh, we've already got that all set up. That happens Uh, about four or five years later, Stephen King is in Boulder and he's working on this novel that he is going to call the House on Value Street, which is about an heiress being kidnapped by a radical organization and being uh, brainwashed. Uh, And then he puts in parentheses or her sociopolitical awakening, depending on your point of view, I guess. Anyway, uh... You know, while I was aware that a that lots of nonfiction books were sure to be written on the subject, it seemed to me that only a novel might really succeed in explaining all the contradictions. So that happens. Uh, King is working on that, um, mm-hmm. and as he is doing this, you know, he's you know flipping ideas around in his mind, uh, doing the thing that we've talked about, where he writes so fast that the uh, uh, the typewriter catches on fire and it's shooting molten metal everywhere. He also. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gets this idea for like the the a sort of mechanism for uh, a biological agent to be released because uh, he hears um, a news story. There was uh you know this some sort of chemical agent or waste or whatever uh rolls off the back of a truck. Um, the container's holding it crack and uh the. Gas I guess drifts away on the wind and kills like a herd of sheep or cows or something and basically if the wind had been going in the other direction it would have hit a a city mm. and so Stephen King is sort of thinking about that. Uh, he's also thinking about uh, Night Surf, which is a short story from the previous uh, book we read, the short story collection Night Shift, uh, about a bunch of teenagers who are living in sort of the, the post, uh, like the aftermath of a pandemic that has killed basically everyone else. And he starts wondering, like, well, what happens if during this House on Value Street novel, right, like what happens if a plague comes and it turns out that only the people in like the, the SLA are immune? Sort of concomitant with this, he is focusing on uh, Donald DeFries, leader of the SLA, and he becomes uh, sort of obsessed mm-hmm. with a phrase, Donald DeFries is a dark man. Uh, one thing I do want to be clear about here, Donald DeFreeze is a black man. And so that Uh figuration is weighted, especially in, in, as we get into the novel, when we talk about the character that DeFreeze inspires, Randall Flagg is in fact a white man, um, but is often referred to as the dark man or the black man. And there's just, there's a lot of, a lot of things happening there, uh, that's going on, right? And uh, not only that, but King has had this idea of a character he would like to call the Dark Man uh, since he was in college. He wrote a poem um, called The Dark Man. It, it gets published in Skeleton Crew. So we'll read that eventually. But it was uh, the poem is about like the Dark Man, right? This mysterious man mm. who travels around in the background and all these things, right? He's kind of like basically a, a, a an evil vagrant. All these like strands of thought for Steve. Stephen King are kind of coming together and he at another point is driving through, I think probably Colorado or or somewhere around there and he's scamming through the radio and he hears a, a like a Christian televangelist say of the line, once a generation, a plague shall fall among them. And all of this stuff kind of comes together and he thinks, dang, you know, what if I wrote Uh, an epic story like the Lord of the Rings but instead of having to learn all of the fictional geography that you have to do when you're reading Tolkien uh, what if the geography was stuff that the reader already knew right what if it was a big Tolkien-esque fantasy epic uh, uh, this clash between good and evil but it was happening here in America on uh, sort of recognizable American streets with American geography and this is coming after uh, you know not just the Patty Hearst thing, but we're still sort of post Watergate, which we talked about on the Salem's Lot episode. Uh, There's there's a real sense uh, that things are going, if not bad in America, then things are getting really rough. And Stephen King's kind of response to this is exactly what you said, which is this kind of uh, a uh, American mythologizing like I shall make a new a, a new myth for America that is about America in the same way that Lord of the Rings is about I don't know whatever Lord of the Rings is about I have some ideas I don't get a clear sense of what King thinks Lord of the Rings is about
1: no not well I I, I mean I think that he thinks the stand is about the Lord of the Rings and the Lord of the Rings is about itself yeah <laughs> you know what I mean like I, I because you can map, I mean, we'll talk about the plot in just a minute, but you can map a lot of things, I think, directly onto the Lord of the Rings, of which I'm obviously an expert. I've played uh, the War of the Ring board game two times in the past week, so I know all about the Lord of the Rings now. I'm very enfranchised. Um, but but I th- yeah, I don't, I, I think he has a sense that Tolkien is like the, the mythological project that Tolkien was involved in, of like creating this unified mythology or this fictionalized mythology that that talks about you know mm-hmm. the kind of er history of of england and all that kind of stuff i think he has a sense of that but i don't think that um he's thought about it much more than that um the, the other thing i guess that's worth saying here at the top too <clears throat> is that this is i i mean correct me if i'm wrong this is the but i believe this is the novel that like makes stephen king stephen king um, like all of his other novels have been successful, but this is a novel that
0: breaks him into, you know, the highest tier. I don't know because none of the stuff that I have read has suggested that, but I will say, um, you know, this is 1978. The Carey movie is just getting ready to come out. It is the right timing. Right, like Carrie's going to come out next year. Mm. This is his most recent novel. Mm-hmm. Um, gotcha. Like a lot of people are going to be introduced to him through Carrie, and if they're going to go to the bookstore and pick up the most recent Stephen King, The Stand is what they're going to get. Yeah. So, so maybe maybe it's less about
1: this, but not novel specifically, more about like a, a confluence of factors um, and having yeah. a pretty solid. I mean, as we've discussed on the show so far, a pretty solid backlog at this point. I mean, you mm-hmm. you're not going to you're you're not going to be able to read Rage. Right. Like you, you wouldn't know it's Stephen King, um, you know, if you did read it. And so uh, any Stephen King book you pick up uh, when Carrie comes out, you're going to be probably happy with Mm -hmm. it.
0: And I should say, like, also, I think I think to some extent, right, maybe the stand does help with making Stephen King Stephen King, uh, because if you pick up this, like if you haven't heard of this guy and it's 1979 and you pick this book up off the shelf. It is kind of unlike anything else that you're going to be likely to pick up in your in your local five and dime.
1: One hundred percent, and I think that has to do with genre. And I think finally we can we can actually talk about the the plot of the novel. Um, but I think it has to do with genre. And I've weirdly enough become like a big genre person now that we've been reading these uh, Stephen King books um, I, because something that shared between your experience and my experience is that when I was growing up. Um, the only people that I knew who read Stephen King were me, one of my friends, who was the same age, mm-hmm. and we would get it from the library, and then everyone's mom. Like, I I did not know until I was an adult, right? I had mm-hmm. never met an adult man who had read a Stephen King novel. Um, it was all adult women. And I think that actually has something to do with Stephen King's genre, um, I, I, or, or maybe... I, I don't I don't think that he's like writing for women necessarily, but I think that there's something interesting going on between mm-hmm. the way that he works on with like normal novely kind of stuff um, and then science fiction elements. Um, all of these Stephen King books so far, and this is the one that really kind of starts complicating it, I think, but they're all science fiction novels. And to me, they work exactly the same as um, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Clancy novels or this novel works like a Tom Clancy novel. Um, Very plot driven, very kind of explicit light science fiction Mm -hmm. element to it, uh, but then kind of runs like a thriller the rest of the time, right? There are characters, you know, they're imperiled, and then they kind of run forward with it. Um, And, you know, my sample size is very small, but the, uh, the women I knew growing up who were reading Stephen King novels... Um, were also the women who were reading Tom Clancy novels. And so I think that there's a a really interesting mass appeal. This also maybe has Mm -hmm. to do with the fact that I grew up in an area where I didn't know any adult men who read books, really, (laughs) other than, like, educational figures. And so it could just be that this is what, you know, what the general readership was reading at the time. But I, I think there's something about this kind of science fiction into thriller thrust of this novel Um, that really makes it work for just a readership in a Mm -hmm. general sense. Um, and I think it explains a lot
0: about Stephen King's appeal. Uh, but yeah, with that set, I guess we can talk about the book and, uh, what it is about and sort of what it does. And I've decided that the best way to get through the book is probably to talk about the list of kind of the core characters and what is nice about this and again what is sort of interesting about the the book as a project um is that the characters even even if they're easily mixed up for example um from a structural perspective they all have this really interesting kind they're, they're uh, their plots parallel each other right there's a symmetry among the characters and sort of like when a certain character will meet a minor character who then becomes associated with them through the rest of the story uh their sort of complementary character who's like the evil version of them will also meet a uh, secondary character who serves the same function there's a lot of really interesting weird stuff like that that happens in this novel uh that works to greater and lesser effect, I think. Let's talk about Stu Redman, who's kind of the closest thing we have to a protagonist, like a singular protagonist. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, (laughs) he's from East Texas. He read Watership Down once.
1: He, boy, did he re-Watership Down once. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, so maybe this is something too, right? We, we have talked often in, uh, so far, about mm-hmm. Stephen King's stock characters. And there are some of them in here, but for the most part, this is Stephen King proliferating a new cast of characters and then turning them into stock characters. Yes. Um, so we're going to see more Stu Redmonds as time goes on. Um, I, I guess Fran, who we'll talk about in a second, is mm-hmm. a Stephen King stock character already. Yeah. Um, and Tom Cullen is too, unfortunately. Um, but but yeah, so Stu, I I, I think Stu's plot is the, the most, well, one of the most interesting. I think that if you were going to cut this novel down and cut down all the POVs, you know, and made it one singular POV, who's your, your main character, like you were saying, and what's their journey through, through the plot? It would be Stu, because... The general plot of the thing, as I said in the summary, right, is that these people survive the plague, they go to Colorado, and then they're trying to figure out what to do with this kind of bipolar world that has appeared, which is uh, the good people in Colorado are like the regular people and the truly evil people who live in Las Vegas, and they believe throughout the, the bulk of the back half of the novel that the people in Las Vegas are going to bomb them, they're going to get a disease, another plague, and let it loose and kill all the people mm-hmm. in Colorado. So they believe that there's basically a timer on for what's going to happen. Um, and, and I say all that to say that, that Stu is mm-hmm. one of the few characters who starts at the beginning and makes it almost all the way to the end. Um, or no, does make it all the way yeah, to the end, no, right? Stu
0: is, Stu is, so in in this original text of the novel... Uh, Stew is our first character, right? He is our point of view character in the first chapter mm-hmm. in the complete, and uncut edition. That's not the case. We see uh the Campion family escaping from the the research facility where Captain Trips has been developed. But here we just start with Stew. Mm-hmm. He's in a gas station, hanging out with all his East Texas buddies. And how I would describe Stew as a character is that he has been Mears from Salem's Lot, if. Stephen King couldn't relate to him Uh, because like Ben Mears has in his favor that he's a novelist (laughs) and he he thinks about things like a novelist, but he's otherwise kind of a pretty working class guy. Mm -hmm. Stu is a working class guy from East Texas who I think was in Vietnam. It's mentioned that he was in the war, um, but otherwise he's worked at the local calculator plant for most of his life and he played football in high school. Yeah. And there's like talk that he could have gone to college
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and it doesn't, it doesn't work out for like family reasons, I think. Right. But yeah, a hundred percent. He is an alternate universe. Ben Mears, uh, you know, we get that little bit of Ben Mears in Salem slot where it says that like, uh, but, you know, he would have been uh, or, you know, he uh, works as a mechanic for a little while and he like feels good about it. Right. So he's he's Stu Redman is salt of the earth in the same way that many of these Stephen King uh, characters are salt of the earth. He is perhaps uh, smarter than your average guy. And that's, you know, to his favor all the time, constantly. Um and but you know, he is a person from a small town in East Texas. In a small town in East Texas to Stephen King is exactly the same as a small town in Maine.
0: <laughs> they just have different accents. Yeah, Stu's plot line, the super fluke hits his hometown in Texas first. We get all of his sort of friends and neighbors, uh, and then we get to watch them all die. This is the first third of the novel, right? And this is still, in my opinion, the coolest part because yeah. all of the characters are spread out all over the country and we get the the very Stephen Kingy uh sections where you'll get a, a multitude of minor characters like so the gas station that Stu is at where Campion shows up like they've escaped the 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 compound or whatever he and his family his wife and his child are already dead they're infected with the super flu the people in the gas station it's like the old fogies sitting around chatting which we saw a lot of in night shift as well they're like oh gosh oh golly then they're all infected because they've all been around the the bodies and then a, one of the guy's cousins, who's like a highway patrolman, comes in. And then that highway patrolman goes out onto his routes. And on his way, he exposes this person and this person and this person. And one of them's a family on vacation because it's over the summer. And they go to the hotel or the motel or whatever. And then they swim in the motel pool. And, like, it just traces, you know, how everyone is is being exposed to this thing that's going to kill them. Um, but Stu is the first person who is clearly like immune and when the government comes in and starts like blockading the town and like disappearing people they take Stu to a research facility in New England um the the like it's it's like this well they first they take him to the CDC in Atlanta and then they transfer him to like the backup CDC <laughs> in Vermont yep <laughs> <laughs> S- site location B, CDC location B, uh, and and then by that point, like, like when he's there, that's when society falls. Basically, like it, it within a matter of weeks, right? It's it's something like uh, four to mm-hmm. six weeks, and the entire sort of infrastructure of of the country and of the world has collapsed. Now, uh, one thing to point out, we're also getting background. Uh, we're, we've got a little like plot line with a, the general who was overseeing the project to develop uh, the. The various, like, I guess, strains of super flu or whatever. And the guy who realizes like, oh, man, we have his name is like General Starkey. He's like, we we really we really beefed this one in sort of the background. He orchestrates uh, this thing where like these American agents um, in various other countries are also going to release the super flu. So it will not look like the United States developed it and released it intentionally. Yeah. It will look like no one will know where it actually came from. Um, and this is all that sort of conspiratorial, like post-Watergate stuff, right? The government doesn't really like us. They're not really looking out for us. And they are going to try to cover up this stuff. This is all very grim, but it also has this very curious effect on the rest of the novel where we know the superflu hit the rest of the world. We don't know a single thing About what has happened anywhere other than America. And we never do. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. And and honestly, we
1: don't know that they released... Like, we know there's a plan to release the super flu everywhere else in the world. But we don't know if it did. You know, there's no confirmation that that's happening. Um, So, yeah. I mean, uh, it's a really weird... Uh, you know, uh, St- uh, Stu is specifically our, our POV character to, like, seeing this all happen from beginning to end, right? He's literally there the moment that the first people are infected, and he is there at the last, you know, kind of the the big the big, I mean, <laughs> the big explosion. He speaks the final lines of, of the book, right? Yes. Um, so, you know, he makes it the whole way. And so, I mean, do you
0: think he's our Frodo? No. <laughs> I don't either, (laughs) but so he's, he's, he's like Sam mm, sort of, mm
2: -hmm.
0: right? If, if Sam didn't, if Sam did nothing because he wanted to, if he was just being like poked and prodded to various places and then shrugged and went, oh, I guess I'm going to be a good person. Exactly. So I want you to think for a moment and do not say the name yet, but I want you to
1: think who is the Frodo? of this book <laughs> you can you you you've hit dear listener you i will reveal it in, in just a few minutes but you can think mm-hmm. about who the frodo would be if stew is sam and it's the <laughs> wildest shit on earth uh steve you've done it again i guess but but yeah so stew makes it you know as you say it makes it to vermont and that's when kind of the rest of the cast of characters come in uh, into a relationship with stew um because basically everyone who matters in this novel uh comes from New England. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, hmm, interesting, Steve. Um, but uh and it's because they're you know, as I said in the um the intro here, and we'll talk about these two characters specifically, but all of these characters who are immune to the virus, uh to to uh Captain Trips, to the superflu, oh, we haven't mentioned this. But by the way, it's weird to read this book while we are currently in a yeah. massive international pandemic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's weird. Right. <laughs> but uh, it also makes you feel like, well, it's not this bad. Mm-hmm. You know, it has that kind of effect where we you're like, well, it's not killing 99% of people. So that's good. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I thought it would be weirder, but it really wasn't. Which maybe that itself is weird. But anyway uh all these all these characters are having uh dreams of e- one of two figures and sometimes both figures um a old like 100 plus year old black woman who lives in Nebraska named uh uh Mother Abigail Abigail Fremantle or uh the dark man the evil guy old bad o himself the, the magic man uh Randall Flagg who uh, is in Las Vegas. And everyone is having dreams about these people, and basically the idea is that there's this sort of mystical, mythical pull that's happening where people are aligning themselves with one or the other, and it seems that some people have a choice to make about who they would would like to align themselves with. We'll talk about that stuff uh, a little bit along the line, but Stu is kind of, you know, he's a Mother Abigail. You know, he is a core good character and he meets up with a character named glenn bateman uh in vermont after he escapes from the cdc facility after uh they're they're gonna murder him they're gonna murder Stu, uh to cover everything up and uh you know the government's not your friend like you were saying michael and uh he gets out of that it doesn't really matter that's like good thriller stuff for reading the book but plot wise doesn't really matter he meets up with glenn bateman
0: who is like a college professor (laughs) Yeah, he was a former sociology professor and main characters in this novel collect their supporting characters, right? It's like a, is it Dragon's Dogma mm-hmm, where you can mm-hmm. have your like little... Uh, a pawn. Yeah, your little pawn, <laughs> right? So Stu is the player character and Glenn Bateman is his pawn. Um, Glenn Bateman is another version of the cool older dude, right? He's Matt Burke. He's the the liberal, in, uh, educated older guy who's got mm-hmm. kind of a... a yep. Very, uh, I don't know, sanguine attitude toward the entire collapse of society. Yeah, he's not too stressed about it. <laughs> like, when, when, uh, Stu finds him, he's like painting watercolors by a river and having a mm-hmm. picnic with his dog. Yeah, with his dog, Kojak, um, who we'll talk about. But, uh, yes, yeah, uh, like, I mean, that's, Glenn Bateman is, uh, a version of Gandalf, if we're going to be running with the Lord of the Rings thing, right? He is the first, Right, of well, it's like Gandalf's, <laughs> Gandalf's uh, duties, in terms of, like, the function he serves in Lord of the Rings, gets split here between Glenn Bateman and Mother Abigail. Because Mother Abigail is sort of, like, the religious mystical, and Glenn Bateman is the sociologist. He's yeah. the one who loves to just talk about how, like, well, if enough people get together and form a society, they're just going to start, like instituting secret prisons it's just what happens
1: yeah there's a real strong libertarian streak in glenn Baton. Uh uh-huh um but uh but but you know cool older dude and he's got his dog and um but becomes lightly plot important later i would say but i think you're right that he is a definitive uh, supporting character
0: yeah, I mean, he's there to say things that—he's he's there to say sort of—he in, he provides insightful or at least, like, informed or educated commentary on things that are happening. So Stu can go—Stu and thereby the reader can go, huh, yeah, I guess that is how society works. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, yeah, 100%. This is,
1: I think, will begin a long run, and we've had this a little bit in these novels so far, but— Stephen King, uh, and especially into the now, like, you know, his post 2000s work, Mm -hmm. he loves to put in characters who are just like purely expository. They are just there to give you facts about the world that, you know, that are sometimes perspectival, but Mm -hmm. generally uh, kind of, you know, they're like the background radiation ideology of the world. Um, You get a sense Mm -hmm. that what Glenn Bateman says is just like, you know, it's the uh, common sense of this world. Um, But then we got another couple characters. We got Fran Goldsmith and Harold Lauder.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: So an interesting fact, just to touch on this briefly, uh, apparently in one of Stephen King's first attempts at writing this book, Fran was the central main character. Yeah, it was supposed to be about sort of like the the Stephen King's original sort of vision mm-hmm. for writing this book was going to be Fran in her hometown in Maine. Uh, the super flu comes, everyone dies, and she starts uh, receiving some sort of I don't know if it's Mother Abigail at this point in drafting or what, but she starts receiving some sort of pull toward uh, the middle of America toward Kansas, um, not Nebraska, but Kansas. And as she is sort of like drawn on, she travels the country and she starts like picking up a sort of group of survivors who follow her. And it was modeled more explicitly on The Wizard of Oz with her as Dorothy. That's very similar to The Dark Tower, too. I was going to say, which is important because uh, when we get to The Dark Tower books, it seems very much like Stephen King has his characters in that book visit an earlier draft of this novel. Um, Yeah, So uh, anyway, but that's not how things turn out, because Stephen King eventually gets like for whatever reason, that's not having Fran as the main character and doing the kind of Oz thing isn't making this work for him. And so he does what we're already talking about, which is like shuttling among these different points of view and trying to sort of like encompass the the narrative perspective of the country. So Fran is our requisite Mainer. Uh, She is a, uh, a young girl. She's like 21 or something, maybe not even that old.
1: Yeah, she's twenty twenty one. So she is just maybe maybe younger because she's just had a high like, just school. Just started right?
0: college or something.
1: Um, yeah, I think she has one year of college. It's that's the thing too. You know, apologies if we can't remember these things, but this is an eight hundred and some odd page novel. It's hard to remember things that happened in the first hundred pages. <laughs>
0: yeah, sorry. <laughs> like, like by. <laughs> By the end, it's not terribly important, like how, how, like whether or not uh, Fran tested out of uh, intro comp. Um, But yeah, she's she's a young girl who's living in Maine. She's got a boyfriend named Jesse who uh, is evil. Ben Mears. Dang. Yeah, he is. Yeah, because he he's like a poet. Mm -hmm. Right. But he and he wears like working class clothes, but he actually comes from a wealthy family. He's
1: only in the novel for, for two pages. But damn. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah Stephen King does not yeah. like him <laughs> uh, Fran is you know just sort of living her summer life here in uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's you know it's uh, Ogunquit Maine which is like you know a little uh, summer resort town and there's a guy who lives in her small town uh, who is like the younger brother of one of her friends from high school uh, this guy's name is Harold Lauder and he is the and he's, he's like the local Gross nerd.
1: He's the local nerd. Yeah, yeah. I I am fascinated by Harold Lauder. Hmm. Truly fascinated. Um, because he is a Robert Heinlein character. He is the you know the the Edisonade. Um, so there were all these uh pieces of fiction in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and like kind of the history <laughs> of sci-fi, right? That are called Edisonades. And or Edison, not, mm-hmm. I don't know how you say it, actually, but uh, they are all about like like child inventors, you know, w- wunderkind, right, who are able, who are brilliant and smart. And those get transformed, right, as science fiction changes um, it, into this kind of Heinleinian, uh, brilliant, mm-hmm. determined, um, you know, the, the popular mechanics. yes. Kid. But, you know, on steroids, basically. And Harold Lauder is that character, mm-hmm. right? Like he is the he because he's undeniably a smart person. You know, he, he is a um, uh, he's capable. He does good stuff. He, he has the potential for good in him. And he's very driven, right? Like he has goals in front of him and he's going for them. And but of, of course, you know, uh, as we find out over the novel, right? He's not being called by Mother Abigail. He is being called by Randall flag, and so he he's evil and he does some evil stuff later in the novel that we will we'll talk about when we talk about Colorado But what's so fascinating to me is that this is another moment of science fiction you know, he is a science fiction stock character who is slammed into this science fiction novel and Is made to do other things or maybe I don't think consciously necessarily but is taken to his logical end, right. Mm-hmm. Of being kind of a selfish jackass. <laughs> I mean, not kind of being <laughs> extremely a selfish jackass. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all about sex and it's all about prestige. These very Heinleinian kind of things. So, um, I am fascinated with him as a character and when this episode comes out. So the moment you're listening to, to this, dear listener on the Patreon feed, patreon.com slash range touch, there will be an episode where Michael and I, and a special guest, mm-hmm. Are going to be talking about the miniseries from nineteen ninety four, The Stand, directed by Mick Garris, and Harold Lauder
0: is handled way differently, I think, in that than he is here. Uh, in the miniseries, Harold is uh, handled like the annoying neighbor kid in a Disney Channel original sitcom. A hundred percent,
1: he is like he is a toned down, uh, like meatballs character, <laughs> uh, 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 and. Yeah, uh, it's very different from here. This is a he's a different kind of nerd in 1979 than he is in 1994.
0: Just to just to talk about this and Harold, the handling of him, the description of him is just incredibly fat phobic. Uh, he, he he is he is a nerdy, overweight kid. Uh, he has like, you know, pimples and things yes, like yes. that. Uh, and I'll just say it like when I was reading this at age 13, I was a bookish fat kid. And it really messes you up. Uh, because of the ways that this novel ends up uh thinking through what makes Harold a bad person yeah
1: in Harold's improvement is specifically quote unquote improvement uh is specifically tied to mm-hmm. getting more muscle toned his face clears up uh, he becomes more of a people person and less of a book guy uh you know there's there's it's not just fat phobia which is uh you know obviously bad and it's not just uh this implicit you know uh, uh you know trash-talking these characteristics about him, but there's a moral
0: journey that's associated with it that is also really shitty. Uh, And we, well, we started talking about Harold, and in the process, we kind of diverted from Fran, which is really the story of Fran writ large. Uh, because Stephen King tried to start writing this novel from her, her perspective and then had to change it. Uh, and when we talk about the miniseries, it also makes some choices about Fran that that really kind of minimize her, which is a shame because I actually, I mean, sort of again, right? I, I find Fran maybe, aside from Harold, who I relate to Fran the most because she is the next youngest character and the character who kind of responds to things in in the way most like, I don't know, I feel like I would have. Uh And her kind of situation, uh, I would say, unfortunately, uh, is that she is pregnant, and that is going to take her out of kind of the back half of the action of this novel, Uh, because you know, once a woman is Mm -hmm. pregnant, they can't be narratively important except whether or not they're alive.
1: Yeah, Stephen King is really uh, hamstrung basically by his choices that he makes with her, and then his his inability to think beyond Mm -hmm. the extremely like normative version of that, right? Like pregnant, pregnant women can do things. <laughs> this is not, you know, they are not, uh, reduced to, you know, furniture essentially, but that's exactly what happens to France. So she's a really interesting and, uh, you know, kind of drives the beginning of at least her kind of slice of the plot here at the beginning. But by the time we get a third in, you know, she is reduced to this like third figure in a stew Harold triangle And then she then she's pregnant or, you know, kind of is apparently pregnant and and that's revealed to other people. And she is just like hanging out in Colorado. Um, And I agree. I think she's one of the more interesting characters. But Stephen King cannot see beyond his own horizon line of like what to do with her. And so she just kind of Mm -hmm. sits out.
0: Yeah. And I guess just to lay out their da- dynamic more explicitly, like, Harold has a huge crush on Fran uh, that has been unrequited mm-hmm. forever, right? But it just so happens that when the flu comes to Ogunquit, uh, everyone dies except for these two people. Uh, and it's, it's, it's as awkward mm-hmm. as you can imagine.
1: <laughs> yeah. and uh, And then she gets involved in a love triangle. And that's kind of the only way that Stephen King knows how to carry the middle of this novel is Mm -hmm. to like really start fitting it into. That's why I said at the beginning, right? That I think that this might be a bad novel. And that's because when plot breaks down here or when like plot is obviously not driving the bus, he is having to rely on just kind of core staples of the bourgeois novel. Right? So, all right, well we're here and we don't have we can't move it too quickly here mm-hmm. because it would feel weird and so we got to have a love triangle that like drives the bus a little while and it's it's just not interesting compared to the rest of the book and then like there are all kinds of bad things associated with it in the sense of like it you know drives Fran below the novel you know she she really has no more impact on it but it's also bad in the sense that it feels like wheels are spinning because he's not ready to set up the next thing yet. And that's what you were talking about earlier with pacing. Um, this novel is really poorly paced, and it's because it's trying to juggle all these characters and trying to juggle also the interesting parts about them with stock plots. And those stock plots are not interesting. Stephen King is not good at that thing, it's not what he is clever about. Um, and so it just, there are some real
0: slogs, you know, 70 pages of not a lot happening. Uh, yeah, uh, but that's sort of the those are kind of our that's a duo right like both Fran and Stu are going to see we're, we're going to see them to the end of the novel they're kind of the closest thing to a central mm-hmm. set of characters uh that are important to to this sort of overall drive here um but really I think the core characters of this novel are a trio uh and the third person the kind of third perspective um is our is a reiteration and in, in some ways of Jack Torrance uh, and it's a guy named Larry Underwood.
1: Larry! I, uh, so I, I've said this, and I'll say this again on the other episode, but Larry is my favorite character in the miniseries. <laughs> um, I cannot... I, I have to praise it here. Please listen. Look, I'm not often saying you got to subscribe to the bonus episodes. I'm not often hollering about that. I think you should, because we record them. We have a good time. But I'm going to be effusive about Larry Underwood in that series for probably 15 full minutes, and if you want to hear that, it's $5 a month on Patreon. It's worth the money, mm-hmm. I promise. But uh, Larry is a, a singer-songwriter mm-hmm. living out in L.A.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Makes a hit single called Baby Can You Dig Your Man.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Everything which, is coming up Larry.
1: Everything's coming up Larry, except he spent way too much money on cocaine. Yep. And so in the final days of American Empire he has to flee to New York to hang out with his mm-hmm. mom to uh get away from his drug
0: dealer. <laughs> yep uh what a relatable story you know it's it's interesting right this is our first like we got some hints of it i think in the short stories in night shift but this is the first point where we're going to get new york stephen king which is going to come back in various forms later on stephen king he loves himself some new york city uh but this is our first real taste of it, it
1: much like uh famed character la rob there's <laughs> there's new york <laughs> steve <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you wear sunglasses of course. of course um but yeah so larry as i said he is a reiteration of jack torrance in the sense that he is a troubled creative with substance issues um and also a complicated relationship with his uh parents or his family in this case it's his his mother mm-hmm. whom he essentially ran out on um it's not like she was necessarily uh you know, in, in need of him, but like his father was dead. Uh, and he, Larry was kind of a, he was a bit of a scamp growing up around New York in the, in the, uh, sixties and seventies. Cause the, the first printing of this novel again, takes place in 1980. Uh, the version we read, I think takes place in 1985 because like two years after Stephen King, (laughs) um, releases this book, he realizes like, Oh yeah, two years isn't actually a lot in terms of the future. So I'm just going to make it 1985. Uh, but yeah, anyway, and, well, uh, the in uh, when
1: 1990 happens too, it bumps, it bumps up to
0: like 95 or something, right? Uh, I think the weird thing about the 1990 ninety release is that he just changed all the dates to 1990. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It hmm. uh, hasn't updated it since. Jeez, Steve. Yeah, but you uh, should update it every year. <laughs> <laughs> yes, every year, a new printing of the stand that moves it yeah. like five to ten more years into the future. Yeah. Um So it's like, so it's like twenty thirty, and no one has cell phones <laughs> or <laughs> uses yeah, the internet, yeah,
1: that's not any weirder than this stuff happening in nineteen ninety but yeah. anyway, sorry we we digress, but Larry Underwood has made this song, and you know he's back with his mother, and um uh people this is important too. People think that the song made by Larry
0: Underwood, baby, can you dig your man? is performed by a black man yes because this is what his mother says is that you 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 quote unquote sound black um and his like his mother is sort of an opportunity for stephen king to show us all of like Mm -hmm. the your your traditional 1970s grimy new york problems right the neighborhoods are bad people are breaking windows uh Like there's a lot of people who don't speak English in the neighborhood now, that sort of thing. And his mom's just kind of been soldiering along and Larry comes back to see her in her kind of rundown apartment. Um, And it's like the first time I think he's seen her in maybe like 10 years or something. Uh, And she, she kind of has, she's like, Oh God, Larry, like what sort of trouble are you in that you've come back to me? But she takes him in nonetheless. uh, And, um, I mean, basically what this what this does is that this sets up a kind of weird Oedipal thing that Larry is going to work out throughout the rest of the novel. And I don't mean Oedipal in the sense that, like, Larry clearly wants to sleep with his mom, but more like he is aware that to some extent he abandoned his mother Mm -hmm. and bring coming back at this point makes him feel very, very bad. Uh, But at the same time, he can't really bring himself to like. You know, be a good son, whatever that might mean. He doesn't know what he can do to make it right. And of course, uh, all of that is cut short anyway, because the super flu comes in, uh, his mom dies, as well as just about everyone else in New York. And, you know, like, plague ridden New York is some of the coolest shit in this book
1: a hundred percent. and I think the the stuff about Larry and his mother too, you know, I think you called what was it that you called the the shining that's that King called it a crossroads novel mm-hmm. right? So kind of making a choice between mm-hmm. you know, am I quote unquote a serious novelist or am I this you know kind of um genre guy? and Stephen King, I think you know, as as I was talking about earlier, right. Uh, and, and I think it's something that pays off for him in having a at least gender diversity of readers, is that he says, No, I'm not I'm not making a choice, I'm doing both. Yeah. Um, you know, he he instead of taking a turn at the crossroads, he just lives there. <laughs> um, and I think that's really happening here too, um, with Larry Underwood, because Larry Underwood is in, and I think the the comparison to Jack Torrance is is really good. I didn't even think about that when I was reading, mm-hmm. but Larry Underwood's in his own novel that is different from the novel that other people are in here, right? Stu's in an adventure novel. Fran is in this, like, bourgeois, uh, you know, romance novel, something of that, or Stephen King's version of that. Um, And Larry Underwood is in, um, you know, he's in The Shining. You know, he's in this thing where he is trying to reconcile the choices that he's made and the kind of person that he is. And and the reason I brought up the kind of uh, that people think that the song is written by a black man, not just arbitrary, but Larry Underwood is thinking about that, you know, thinking about the choices that he makes and the way that he presents himself to the world and maybe the way that that he undermines other people and other other people's effort in the world throughout the rest of this book. Um, You know, Stephen King sometimes hits the emotional strings just right. And so as Larry's mother is getting sick with the super flu that we know is going to kill everyone, right? And after this kind of difficult coming home, you know, he just appears and she takes him in anyway, like you're saying. he She goes to work, and I think that's where she gets the super flu, and... Uh, he goes to open the
0: refrigerator and it's all of the food that he liked growing up. I was just saying it's like it's so it's so good. It's so sad, like because he's he's like he's very tired. So he's gone to like he's fallen asleep and he wakes up and he finds out she's gone grocery shopping and she remembers all of his favorite foods and she's bought them all. Yeah.
1: And and so, you know, it, this is a moment. I think this is still obviously like selfish Larry in um, the next little bit of novel is going to be selfish Larry. But, you know, he he's a character who I think emotionally changes the most over the course of the novel. Um, and it's because, you know, Steve's doing all this weird uh, Uncle Steve is doing all this weird um, genre interleaving that I think really works here. I mean, I, I think that Larry Underwood is my favorite character for a bunch of different reasons. Um, but well, you know what? Maybe he's not my favorite character, but I like what happens with him in the novel. And I think unfortunately, too, the um, the. The cut version doesn't really have the same ending to his mother's story as the uh, Mm -hmm. the uncut version does. And I think the uncut version has a better version. But we'll talk about that when we get there.
0: Can I say that? uh, Can can I float my my uh, guess that Larry is our Frodo?
1: I don't think Larry is Frodo.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, because you're you're taking it in a different direction than I did, because the thing that I was going to say mm-hmm. is that Larry is Frodo insofar as we've talked about these dreams that people have, right? Good people dream about Mother Abigail, bad people dream about the Dark mm-hmm. Man. Um, Larry dreams about both. Yeah. And Larry, uh, contrary to Stu, contrary to Fran, who are both, like, just straight up, like, they are good characters, they start good and they end good, Larry is the tormented one. And he is the one who, uh, both in his dreams, but also in terms of, like, characters he's going to interact with in the novel, um, ends up having a choice about who he aligns himself with. So, uh, to just sort of get into that. He, as I said, you know, all of the main characters have their supporting characters. Larry's first supporting character is a woman named Rita Blakemore, who I think we should mention, uh, because she compounds his guilt about his mother. Uh, she's an older woman that he meets in central park after the flu has come through and just like ravaged everything. Um, and she's like sitting, it's a great scene, right? Him walking through central park, he goes by the zoo and all the animals are Mm -hmm. dead. Um, There are just like bodies lying around. Uh, He can hear like the guy. There's a character that uh, the book calls the monster shouter, which is just a person like somewhere in the distance. And you can hear him shouting like monsters are coming, monsters are coming, but no one like really sees him. They just constantly hear him screaming throughout New York. Um, Larry finds Rita sitting next to like a bandstand, uh, like looking into her purse where she has a pistol and like she's popping pills. And she's like this older, wealthier woman who's been, you know, she's immune to the flu. So she's kind of been cast up into the world and just doesn't really know what to do with herself. Uh, And she and Larry begin a kind of like, like, not exactly romantic, but uh, definitely sexual relationship. Uh, And as I said, like, it's a. It's almost too obvious, right? Like, Larry has a complicated relationship with this older woman, his mother, who supported him, but he also kind of never really supported her, and now she's gone. Now he has found this older woman who is uh, sad and unstable. He's going to try to sort of, like, take her in and, like, keep her propped up, but her issues are related to things that he cannot control, and it does not go well. They end up escaping New York. Then she, Rita, um ends up dying uh she overdoses on pills one night while they're camping and he feels really bad about that because at one point like he got he gets so frustrated with rita and this is this is a part of the book that you know i don't think ages well um in this early stephen king man uh dudes uh are really quick to think about slapping ladies because they're being hysterical
1: yeah well, I, I just don't think Steve is uh <laughs> is very good with I think we have established very easily. Steve's just not great around women in a general sense. And he gets better, I want to <laughs> say, over the course he at least gets better at writing about women. Um I don't know if he gets better about his like depiction of the social uh de- you know, uh, treatment of women or the way that his characters feel about women, but but yeah. Uh I mean, Larry is both uh physically uh beating her here and also emotionally just she's clearly addicted to drugs
0: and he is having no part of that. Yeah. He, he thinks about her as if she were a child. And I don't think that the point, I don't think that the book wants us. Exactly. I don't think the book is like, notice how Larry thinks of her as a child without any sort of like, you know, needs or autonomous desires or anything like that. Um, it just, it's just Larry is Larry is being reasonable by saying that this woman needs to stop crying. Um, and threatening to leave her in New York because she's too scared to go through the corpse-choked Lincoln Tunnel. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that Stephen King at this point in his career, as we have established with, I think, every single book so far, short maybe of Carrie, I think actually it's the one that isn't, is has the most variability within it. Mm-hmm. And that's because there's more than, you know, two women in the book. Um, but, uh, you know, Steve, Stephen King generally has mm-hmm. a very paternalistic view of women and that shows up in his characters who also have paternalistic views and maybe Stephen King doesn't, you know, think this way necessarily, but the ideology, you know, the kind of background radiation that we were talking about before, uh, all of his characters just kind of like, you know, think that women need to be told what's good for them for the mm-hmm. most part and, uh, they need direction in their lives. And it sucks. Mm -hmm. I mean, you read the thing, you're like, good God, Steve. Just think about this for two seconds. What are you doing?
0: Yeah. So uh, that's that's Larry's time with Rita. Um, And then he ends up feeling very bad, like to his credit, I guess. Right. He doesn't think like, man, it was it sure was great of me to have threatened to leave Rita in the city. Uh, He does end up feeling bad about that because she follows him out anyway. And then he feels bad because he kind of like maneuvered her into this position where she really put herself at risk. Um, But she dies and then he meets with uh, sort of his second secondary character uh, who is going to be much more important to the overall flow of the novel. uh, A woman named Nadine Cross. Yes. Who has Joe with her. Yes. A little boy. So let me let me trace this out for you again. Larry, uh, a sort of like prodigal son goes back to his mother whom he has a a bad relationship with kind of maybe starts to patch it up, but doesn't really, uh, meets this older woman who, uh, he kind of takes on as a weird mother slash surrogate, uh, or yeah, lovers like surrogate mother figure, um, that he has to like care for. He, he, perceives himself as failing to do that right because she dies and then he meets another woman who has with her uh, a young like almost feral child that she has adopted joe is this little boy who uh doesn't speak and he only wears his underwear like he takes off all clothes that nadine puts on him um and he has like a butcher knife that he threatens people with um but nadine used to be a like kindergarten or like grade school teacher uh, and so she has uh, a kind of way with children and she has fa- she found him uh she says like he was he had been injured um and he like the wound was septic or something and he was nearly dead and she nursed him back to health but uh he mentally or like cognitively hasn't come back for whatever reason right he's been traumatized to such an extent that he is just nearly feral so you know, mothers, right? (laughs) Or like weird, weird symbolic mother relationships Mm -hmm. uh, and complicated mother-like relationships with that. Uh, And what else can we say about Nadine? You
1: know, the, well, before we talk about Nadine, I just want to say one short thing, which is that uh, it's, I never thought I would utter the sentence, but this is not going to be the first or second or third, or maybe even fourth time in just King Things that we talk about a child wearing its underwear
0: and, and wielding a butcher knife. <laughs> mm, <that's laughs> that, <true. that's> this <laughs> is this is another like weird recurring Stephen King thing.
1: <laughs> it really is. It's murderous children who refuse to wear clothes. I don't I don't know what's going on with that. But uh, mm-hmm. but the other thing we could say about Nadine is that she is a virgin. That's a big important part. Um, and the reason for that is that Nadine, uh, where Larry dreams of uh, Mother Abigail and
0: Randall Flag. Nadine only dreams of Randall Flagg. And in fact, has been dreaming of Randall Flagg, not just since the flu started, but her entire life.
1: Yeah. And so there, this is kind of where I think most aggressively at the beginning of the novel, where the mm-hmm. the like mythical, mystical stuff shows up, um, I, we're going to talk about, you know, to, uh, just a bit when we when we talk about Abigail, uh, Mother Abigail and, and Randall Flagg. Mm-hmm. I'm really resistant to the religious reading of this text yeah. um, that the miniseries really doubles down on, I think, unfortunately. Um, but because in but anyway, she Nadine seems to have her entire life, as you're saying, been uh, drafted into some sort mm-hmm. of mythical process that is beyond her. And so, you know, she is literally saving herself for this, you know, evil incarnate character. And that's like her driving point in the plot. Right. So she's doing all this other stuff and she has potential choices that she makes but unlike Harold, who seems like he has some maybe authentic choices there, and unlike Larry, who definitely has authentic choices, Nadine, and this has to do with the kind of gendered writing of this book, and, and the way that Stephen King is kind of floating these very kind of 2D characters a lot of the time, she doesn't have as much choice, um, and seems destined to make her way to, mm-hmm. um, you know, to the end game. Although I guess she has some kind of choice in the end.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And we'll we'll talk about that because that has to do like what happens with nadine uh in, in her final moment is i think indicative of some of the weirder problems that the back half of this book has but 100 but yeah you're exactly right in that um it's it's weird it's it it sort of works but it's also kind of weird in that nadine knows that she has some sort of great and terrifying destiny She doesn't seem to quite comprehend the specifics of it. She knows it's sort of scary, right? She doesn't think like, oh, I have a great destiny and it's perfect and beautiful. There is something frightening to her about it. And at the same time, she is wholly committed to seeing it through in a way that it's really weird. If only because I never quite know exactly what she thinks is in it for her. Unless the point that I'm supposed to get is that like she is committed to her destiny because she thinks it's her destiny, in which case that that is weird, right? It does give her um, kind of this this uh, feeling of complexity in that she spends the majority of her time in this novel working with people she knows she can't stay with.
1: Yes. yeah, I just think that she lacks interiority mm-hmm. um, and because but we spend so much time in Harold's head mm-hmm. like watching you know the wheels turn about who should he betray them he he is uh valued in this community he's found a place he's not the kind of nerd that he used to be he's a valued member should he just double down on that or should he go for this kind of promise of you know potential glory or whatever and also you know the kind of background of uh bullying that he received as a child for being a nerd right like all these things are kind of running around in his head. And it the the narrative we get about Harold over the, the whole book is that mm-hmm. unfortunately for him, he can't let the past go, mm-hmm. even in a world in which the future is unwritten, um, you know, where where everyone is dead. And so he can kind of write his own ticket. Nadine does not have that kind of reflectiveness about the conditions of the world. Like you're saying, she is so dead set on like fulfilling this destiny but we don't even get like a logic of why that is good to her um, other than it feel, it, you know, it's mysterious. It feels weird. Um, and it, it feels to me like where Harold makes choices about should he betray these people or shouldn't he? And he has complicated decisions about why he wants to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, Nadine is basically hypnotized by Randall Flagg. And so it's like, well, that's it. You know, it's she's hypnotized. She's just going to go do that thing. Um, and it's really unfortunate because I think she has as much, if not more, kind of material to work through as Harold does. And King kind of leaves it on the table.
0: Well, she's like one of the few characters who has explicit moral principles. And like she has two like one is that, you know, she yeah. she rescues Joe, this little feral boy, um, because she was a like grade school teacher and she loves children. Right. Like that is a true thing about her. She likes children. She likes working with them. Um, And we get that and we see sort of like the the effects of that in that she, you know, uh, adopts and rehabilitates to some extent, Joe. Um, But then the other thing that we get is that she is she believes that murder in the post apocalypse is an unforgivable sin. Um, Like she she thinks, you know, every so many people have died already. The worst thing you could possibly do is take another life. Uh, And then ends up being like, well, I guess in order to fulfill my destiny, I'm going to have to betray this principle. And that's just kind of it. Yeah, it's it's unfair. like she everything
1: about Nadine is on the page mm-hmm. and it's in exposition and and everything about other characters with complexity here with similar choices to make is in their head and not in exposition. And I think that, you know, King literally writes himself into a corner with with how he does her. And I think he's just not thinking about it. Um, you know, I think she has the opportunity to be a character that's as quote unquote main character as a Larry Underwood and as you have put in the show notes and kind of in the chart, she is not a main character. She is a you know a uh, supporting character, and I think that's a mistake. Um, but yeah, and then Lu- you want to talk about Lucy really briefly?
0: Yeah. So Lucy is the the next in the series of women that get transposed throughout Larry Underwood's life. Lucy is the next one. So as we already said, Larry dreams of both uh, the Dark Man and uh, Mother Abigail. Um, And he kind of has a sort of romantic tension with Nadine. But as we've mentioned, Nadine is a virgin and she has, you know, she has sort of like half remembered. We get little glimpses of like her past when she was a teenager and she was uh, sort of, you know, uh, a little drunk and like running with a boy through a a field or something. This like weirdly pastoral idyllic memory. Um, It was like the night and they had wine. Uh, and she almost slept with this boy, but then she had her like feeling of her destiny, which is that she must remain a virgin for uh, Randall Flagg in the end. Um, but that doesn't mean she isn't, you know, attracted to Larry and, uh, you know, developing feelings for him. And he's developing feelings for her and he forms, you know, this kind of little surrogate family with her and Joe. And then as 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 these people sort of start meeting up into groups. Uh, And they're all realizing, like, hey, we're having these dreams. Should we go to Nebraska, where Mother Abigail is? Because in all of the dreams where they meet Mother Abigail, she tells them, like, I'm in Hemingford Home, Nebraska. And she gives them, like, directions. Uh, So as these groups of survivors kind of uh, uh, congregate and start moving toward Nebraska, uh, Larry's group uh, meets a woman named uh, Lucy Swan, who ends up become because uh, he and Nadine get really close to to really you know consummating things and then she's like no I could never and then she you know drops him like a bad habit and Larry kind of uh, takes this in in it, it, it compounds his escalating sort of feelings of guilt and resentment towards like these women in his life uh, but then he hooks up with Lucy Swan who is. Not a particularly like depthful character. She's basically there to be his option after Nadine. And then Lucy, of course, starts working with Joe, who begins talking again, and we find out his name is actually leo uh and Nadine kind of gets uh pushed out of the weird little surrogate family unit that uh that they have formed. Um, so that's who Lucy is. Nadine is kind mm-hmm. of
1: downstream again from choices that other characters are making. And that's the thing that ultimately pushes her out, you know, into the hands of Randall Flagg, is that she has, you know, been uh, kind of removed from the surrogate family. Yep.
0: Nick Andros. Uh-huh. Hey, folks, Michael here in post to let you know that we looked into ways to describe Nick and his disabilities, and it turns out we're not really sure on this one. A lot of these labels depend on specificity with regard to physical or medical circumstances, and because Nick is a fictional character written by an author who really didn't look into that sort of thing, those circumstances aren't there in the text to guide us in choosing appropriate terms. Just a heads up, and thank you for understanding.
1: Nick Andros is an odd character uh, for a lot of ways, and I'll say one of the key reasons for me is that I believe believed for, I don't know, uh, most of the novel, that Nick that Nick Andros was a black man.
0: <laughs> that is interesting. How did that happen?
1: <laughs> so this is why. Uh, Nick Andros is um, uh, introduced in the novel because he's wandering around in Shoyo, Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, Nick Andros is,
0: uh, he can't hear and he can't speak. So he's deaf and mute. Is mute the appropriate term? Yeah, uh, I'm, it might be nonverbal, but I don't know if that is like a specific use for specific cases. Um, but yeah, you're, he he cannot uh, hear and he cannot speak, right? Uh,
1: so he can't hear and he can't speak. And so he gets jumped outside of like a bar or, or down the road from a bar in Shoyo, Texas. Or no, Shoyo, Arkansas. And... Um, it, it, and so it's like these three dudes and they beat him up and you, you find out that we're like one dude's the the sheriff's brother-in-law. And it's like it's this own weird little like Western that's happening in the beginning of the novel. Right. All these people are in different novels to begin with. Um, but the reason I thought so is I couldn't think. I, I just assumed that if he was being beat up for no reason in the street, it had to be racial. Mm. And, and it's yeah, not.
0: Well, it's because He's I, just beaten up. The sense that I get,
2: right? I think
1: is for no reason.
0: He gets beaten up because he is a drifter, right? He yep. does just sort of uh wander through like towns looking for work.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh
0: because of that, and then he happens to run into some like good old boys in this Arkansas town who like are getting rowdy, and they appear to interpret his mm-hmm. like un like he he cannot speak to them and they interpret that as him being like, I don't know, like flip, like snubbing them or something. And so they track him down uh, later on the road and then beat him.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, in my in my imagination of, you know, I guess, you know, this is talk about background ideology. I just assumed if someone is being attacked and beaten in the street for no reason Hmm. that it has to be racial. And so I just I don't know. I just made it through most of the book thinking, oh, yeah, Nick Andrews. And uh, I think it makes I'm just gonna be honest. I think it makes the character more interesting. I mean, it does. Uh, Because you really interpret a lot of things (laughs) that happen to him in very different ways. Uh, based on uh, his racial makeup, but he is a uh, he's a white man, um, and uh, he he has a super cool little novel, much like Larry here at the beginning too, where you know he is uh, you know he identifies these people to the sheriff, and the sheriff says, "Oh, this is my brother-in-law," and uh, they go and arrest them all. And there's this long thing of like, "Do you really want to take this to you know <laughs> to its logical end? You know, it's going to be hard to prosecute them." And Nick Andros is like yes i do i do want to do that and so they do it and the sheriff gets sick with captain trips and so nick andros becomes like the sheriff and he's like having to determine what he's going to do with these guys who are you know super sick and dying in the, in the cell in the uh, um uh jail cells so anyway it's just this interesting thing and eventually you know that that all comes to an end everyone dies except for um yeah. The kind of lead dude. And I think he's sick when Nick Andrews finally lets him out of the jail cell. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he, scoots on, he gets on a bicycle and scoots
0: off down the road to meet Tom Cullen. <sighs> so Tom Cullen is uh, Nick's sort of secondary character. <sighs> what can we say about Tom Cullen? Tom Cullen is
1: a uh, mentally disabled man. Yeah. Who has the mind of maybe a 10-year-old. And this is unfortunately also a Stephen King stock
0: character. Yeah, and also, like, just to, uh, to make something explicit here, right? It is not an accident that the two characters with disabilities have been yoked together. No, it's not. Um, if only for Stephen King to reference the fact that they're together <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like the, the Stephen King stock character, um, related to the stock care, the other unfortunate stock character that we're going to have to talk about. Um, we've already talked about like when, when, uh, a, a black person shows up and then suddenly they have magical abilities. Uh, this is the, the other version of that, which is the person, um, with disabilities who also, has some sort of magic capacity.
1: Yeah. I I mean, Stephen King, um, I, I think that it probably comes from a like Christian charitable place. Uh huh. And you, and you know, Stephen King, I don't think is a super religious writer in any way, but he really leans on, I think, you know, some kind of core tenets of Christian Americana. Mm -hmm. And one of them is, you know, about like the power of quote unquote, the least of us. Right. So those who are the most marginalized in society, um have are in, in some mm-hmm. ways uh, able to respond to that marginalization in ways that are surprising you know and i think this is very christian you know uh, imaginary about it um and so he often puts in characters with mental disabilities in order for them to do things that you would not expect someone with a mental disability to mm-hmm. be able to do and that's the whole reason that that character is written in such a way um, it is not to make them, you know, to have them just be a full human. It, it's nothing like that. They are there to serve as a kind of wrench, right? To work on the plot of the science fiction or fantasy or whatever thing, right? So it shows up again in Dreamcatcher. It shows up again in, mm-hmm. um, uh, the green mile and I'm sure of several others too, but those are the two, I think most, uh, egregious versions of, of the Tom Cullen
0: character type in Stephen King. Right, and that's precisely the the sort of thinking here, uh, because Nick and Tom mm-hmm. are the characters who end up most closely related to this novel's conception of God. Uh, Tom, sort of most directly, and Nick by way of uh, his relationship with Mother Abigail.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean the <laughs> yeah, and the way that uh, another preview for the uh, mini series, but the way that that happens with Nick and Mother Abigail, and that's even. <laughs> uh, more bizarre, but, um, but, but yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there is this kind of, you know, and I think that it's the ideology that I grew up in, right? If I asked like anyone older in my life about, Mm -hmm. you know, why, you know, it's the the kind of like child atheist question, right? Like why does God do bad things? Right. And Mm -hmm. And it always is this kind of like um, you know, universal scales, mm-hmm. right? Something, something goes away and something comes back. Bad things happen, good things happen, right? And and there's also something too about the way that he treats characters who, are the way that King writes characters with mental disabilities, is, is that they are like ontologically innocent. Yes. Um, and that, in fact, is Tom Cullen's narrative in this book. I mean, it it is his inability you know, quote unquote, right, mm-hmm. uh, It is his inability to be like everyone else. That is a superpower in the context of this novel. Um, and um, that's why. Let me. I'm going to hit you with it now. He's Frodo.
0: Yeah, no, that makes
2: sense. Mm-hmm.
1: He goes all the way to Vegas and he comes back uh-huh. changed. Right. He's got he literally, you know, has got a Jesus's way mm-hmm. through the desert on the way back. And then guided by God, basically. And uh, guided by dreams. And then he oh. returns. And then Stu yeah. Redman brings him back to Colorado. Frodo's his ass, you know, for months at a time.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah, so like, uh, because Stu is the one who's like sick and dying and Tom Cullen is like dragging him around. Uh, so yeah, no, we got a, a, the the Frodo salmon version. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just another uh, sort of, a, a, a third character here who is kind of part of the Nick Tom uh, plot line, is a guy named Ralph Brentner, who has almost I mean, literally, he has one distinguishing characteristic and it's that he wears a hat. <laughs> he has a truck, too. Um, <laughs> he has a truck and he has like a jaunty hat with a feather in it. Um, and he becomes important at the end of the book, mostly because we need another important character. Uh, but his character is entirely that he's just like he's just an aw shucks farmer. Yes, Ralph Brentner is invented because Fran is pregnant.
1: hmm <laughs> Like, it's structurally in the novel. It's because Fran cannot mm-hmm. do the end of the novel stuff because she's there, like, bearing, you know, the fruit of the new world or whatever, and is written out of the novel, essentially, to accomplish that. Uh, you have to have someone, like, yeah. go forward and do the symbolic work, and, the, and you can feel Stephen King being like, well, I guess it's this guy. Yep. Like, I guess I'll give him a name, and <laughs> he will become
0: important for 10 minutes uh and then that that covers kind of the majority of the good and a couple of the evil characters uh and then we have really one uh solid like point of view like straight up like bad guy and that's a dude named lloyd henryd yeah he's cool uh I mean, not as a person, but like as a character. Yeah, he's he's like really young. He's like 20 or 21 years old or something. Again, a lot of these characters are pretty young. Stu's like anything in his early 30s. But um, uh, Lloyd is pretty young, which is funny because in the in the miniseries, he's played by Miguel Ferrer. (laughs) Yes. Who just who seemed like, you know, he was 40 years old for 30 years. (laughs) <laughs> and and did this basically back to back with Twin Peaks, which is really weird to to think about
1: that. And also, rest in peace. He he died recently, the last couple of years.
0: Um, but Lloyd is a sort of a uh, small time murderer and crook who was in prison. Uh, while he's in prison, he ends up meeting a, another criminal, uh, named uh Poke. Like that's not his real name; it's his like uh, nickname. Uh, but Poke and Lloyd go on a cross, like an interstate crime spree, right? Shooting people and stealing cars. And, uh, he is Lloyd is every stereotype that we've covered so far about Stephen King and kind of, uh, he's not a greaser, right? He, he is not a greaser, uh, but he is that character, uh, that Stephen King has written before pushed into a different context, which is that he is not very smart. And like, I mean that the text, Right. Like the text of the novel, like comments on how stupid uh, both Lloyd and Polk are repeatedly. Yeah.
1: Lloyd later in the novel says, I used to be dumber than I am now, but I'm still not smart. (laughs) He himself says that he is not a smart man. So, yeah. And uh, yeah, you're right. Aesthetically not a
0: greaser, but ontologically a greaser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is definitely, he's, he's a hacked version of that character class. Um, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, and so he, uh, you know, he, he and Polk are doing their cross country crime spree before the flu. Uh, it, he has the unfortunate uh, luck to end up in prison for all of the murders that they did because Polk gets killed in, in a standoff. Um, Lloyd goes to prison, the, the flu hits and uh, it, really sucks to be locked in a prison cell while everyone around you is dying of the flu, including the, the guards. Uh, and, uh, you know, to say nothing of the current situation with uh, COVID-19 and how it's been handled in, in the U.S. prison system, which is not well at all.
1: Yeah, oh gosh, I, I didn't even think about that in relationship. But yeah, I mean, Stephen King has a pretty dim view, I think, of of uh, the prison system. And it has only gotten, you know, Worse and more extreme. Um, it's interesting to me here, you know, just a, a little Stephen King preview um, that a lot of... So Lloyd, you know, is stuck in this jail cell and uh, eventually Randall Flagg shows up and rescues him. And that's kind of this this relationship that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting to me is that when he's in the jail cell, which is for a fairly long time in the novel, um, the uh, it's very similar to Survivor Type, the short story that's, I think, in Skeleton Crew... Mm -hmm. Um, which is about someone who's stuck on a desert island uh, and literally like a desert island. That's like a hundred yards across or something like that. And uh, you can see Stephen King kind of working through some of those similar ideas Mm -hmm. here. Um, You know, so like eating animals and things like that and thinking about eating one's own body um, and doing cannibalism and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But uh, he gets rescued by Randall Flagg and kind of becomes Randall Flagg's number number two guy. Uh, you know, the big organizer, he's our POV, because we really don't get that much Randall Flag POV in the novel. We get some, but not a lot. Um, and so to find out what's happening in Vegas and to figure out, like, what all mm-hmm. the quote-unquote evil people in the world or in the United States are doing, what's happening in Mordor,
0: basically, um, we get that almost entirely through Lloyd. The other point of view we do get on that is Lloyd's kind of foil in, in terms of plot structure and kind of not... His he this supporting character is not as closely associated with Lloyd as some of the other supporting characters are associated with their mains. Uh, but uh, the trash can man who is uh, mm-hmm. a, like the second kind of point of view character of the, the bad or evil side that we get. But also uh, the trash can man is is the anti Tom Cullen also. Right. Like Tom Cult, like so Nick Andros, who is at first being sort of yes. uh, yeah. selected out of this group of people to be Mother Abigail's lieutenant, because that is the thing that she says that God has told her is that uh, Nick was going to be kind of her first lieutenant. Um, Nick has Tom Cullen uh, and Lloyd Henry has trash can man who is drawn. He's a mm-hmm. I think I don't think this gets said in the novel, but I think like on the Wikipedia page or something it mentions that Trash Can Man is like schizophrenic.
1: I, I mean he he certainly hears voices, but that that is And I don't, you know, I, you know, that is, that is a, I think that, uh, when I say here's voices here in relationship to schizophrenia, I think that's the kind of back of the envelope thinking that is happening both on that Wikipedia page and in Stephen King's brain. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, I don't think this man has like a real disorder in any kind of way, but certainly he is reliving trauma that is being, um, uh, influenced and accelerated by
0: some sort of mental illness. Right. And he, uh, so he, was, as a kid, he didn't have a great life, um, first of all. It seems like there was kind of... Uh, he had uh, your kind of basic Stephen King, like, rough working class in the Midwest upbringing, where, like, there were lots of shitty men and ineffective women. Um, and yep. he starts setting fires as a kid. Uh, he becomes known as like the town firebug because he grows, he's in a, he starts out in a small town in like uh, Northwestern Indiana, very close to Gary. Uh, and he goes, he gets sent to Terre Haute, um, where he is given, we know, electro, uh, shock therapy and various other things. And then I guess leaves the institution and then goes home. It's, it's kind of unclear in the timeline. It's hard for me to untangle, uh, but he comes back and everyone's dead and he he's called the trash can man yeah. because that was the nickname that like the shitty teens when he was growing up gave him cuz he would set fires in town trash cans and he like burnt up an old woman's pension check in her in her mailbox and things like that he's he's a he is a fire bug, right? He is attracted to fire, to burns, to explosions. And because this is northwestern Indiana, um, there's a whole lot of oil and gas out there. And so when he is basically given free reign post-apocalypse, he starts blowing up the oil tanks outside of his town. And he, you know, starts making his way westward because he's getting sort of, uh, you know, his beamed in psychic transmissions from Randall Flagg calling him to, to Las Vegas. Uh, and he is going to be called like if uh, Lloyd is the one who is sort of running the actual business of, of Las Vegas, right, pulling in people who are arriving, giving them jobs and so on. Uh, Trashcan Man exists or like he has been called to flag in order to burn more things, right? Trashcan Man goes out into the desert and locates like stockpiles of weapons that the army has left on various abandoned bases and things like that.
1: Yeah, he has a kind of a sixth sense for finding all of these destructive violent artifacts, right? So he, he finds all this He's weapon. Gollum. He's Gollum. He is one hundred percent Gollum. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking, oh shit, he's not just kind of Gollum. He's just Gollum from the Lord of the Rings. Even the end of the, the end of the novel is explicitly the end of the Lord of the Rings in the sense that um, you know, Gollum. Uh, And and both both Gollum and Trashcan Man have their (laughs) own desires, and their own desires are conflicting with their service to evil, and in trying to suture (laughs) the gap between those two things, ultimately, you know, uh, enable the destruction of evil.
0: Yeah. so yeah, he's just gone. <laughs> yeah, and so like that—that that sort of gets at what I was trying to say about sort of the the strangeness of Trash Can Man and sort of his parts of this book is because you're, you're because it's his point of view, right? He does not, he he because he's hearing voices that aren't there, and we know that he's not got like a one to one relationship with reality. Um, it's, I mean, there is. There is a way in which the the gap between the individual desire and the desire to serve evil uh, gets exploited, may get exploited here. And I think it gets exploited more in the uh, the miniseries where by the end of the novel or like by the end of Trash Can Man's story, you're like, wait a minute, who was he serving? Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, and uh, this is important, too, about the difference between the original novel and the uncut novel, Mm -hmm. is that Trashcan Man in the uncut novel has probably 150 pages dedicated to him over the course of the novel. Yeah. Uh, He has a whole plot that is just him. Mm -hmm. And in the cut version, that's not really the case. I mean, we get four or five kind of big, chunky fragments about him, but... Not a lot of interiority, um, and a lot of like desert wandering. And as you're saying, like really kind of, uh, perspective focalized, you know, what are the sense perceptions that trash can man is experiencing about the world? Um, and and so I think without having like an, he doesn't really have an arc, I guess is, is the thing. And so it feels even more fragmented that way. Whereas in the uncut novel, you can at least get a better sense of what's going on with it. Right,
0: Like the uncut novel, just as an example, because I think people will know about this, but in the uncut novel, there's an entire subplot where the trash can man meets this character called the kid and it goes on forever. Uh, and kind of doesn't really serve a purpose. (laughs) But it's really long and really involved and some really messed up stuff happens uh, in that section that we will talk about when we talk about the uncut text. Uh, but for whatever else it does or doesn't do, it does give like Trash Can Man like it it sells the fact that Trash Can Man has to work really hard to get from northwestern Indiana to Las Vegas on foot. <laughs> uh, whereas in this book, he kind of just like he just does it. Yeah
1: yeah he just appears and, and like I think he maybe do I think yeah. we might see him go into Las Vegas, and then way later in the novel it's like, yeah he's been doing all this stuff just trust us <laughs> Here, let me let me fill you out on what he's up to um so those are all kind of our principal characters, and then we have uh the kind of big mythological figures of uh abigail Fremantle aka mother abigail uh, and Randall Flagg. Mm-hmm.
0: So Mother Abigail, as I already said, is this book's version of Gandalf or like the mystical version of the Gandalf character type. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, Glenn is going to give us the sociologist's perspective. Mother Abigail is a 108 year old woman who has a like one on one speaking relationship with god himself Mm -hmm. we are we are given to understand and just to say it again she is the the second uh that we've talked about i think so far of uh stephen king having the the magical black person as a central character and just you know yeah to be perfectly clear every character we have talked about up until this point has been white and they are all going to in some way like uh, like focalize around Mother Abigail, and it's just a weird dynamic.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, uh, her existence is, one, as a mm-hmm. as a mythological, you know, kind of stand-in for God or something, mm-hmm. and then, two, as a black woman, and they all talk about it constantly. Um, here's a question for you, Michael. It, it, it's mentioned, I believe, I don't think I made this up, although it's at the very beginning of the novel, I think it's when she is talked about first. I didn't have a chance to go back. Does she have The Shining?
0: Um, she calls it like the little light of God or something. The shining little lamp of God, right? So it is uh, very strongly implied that at some point she would have called her ability The Shining.
1: Yeah. And so does every, do all of the other characters who survive in this novel, because they all can see visions, do they all have The Shining? I think they do.
0: I suppose so, right? There's a scene later on where uh, uh, Leo slash Joe is like Larry's talking to him, and Leo is like predicting the future. Do you remember that? Yes. Right. So Lee, there's yeah, there's like a very brief moment where like Larry is talking to uh Joe slash Leo. I think by that point he's like re- remembered his real name and he's going by Leo. Um, but Leo, you know, Leo's like maybe eight or 10 years old, but he, he, he starts talking like Danny from the shining where Mm -hmm. he's just like, I just, he's just like, I, here are some facts that I know. And and Larry's like, how do you know that? And he's like, I don't know. I just know them. They're just things that I see. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I, I would say like, yeah, if, if we're talking about like Stephen King metaphysics and ontology, yeah. Everyone Mm -hmm. who survives, uh, this who, everyone who survived the super flu had, had a little bit of the shining.
1: It's interesting. It's a it's a science fiction novel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because The Shining is, is science fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's also, uh, you know, psychokinesis or, <laughs> or, you know, related to psychokinesis from Carrie. It's one thing. No one's talking about Stephen King as a science fiction author. Mm-hmm. You should be. Um, so she draws them all to Nebraska and then kind of moves them forward and explicitly mm-hmm. sees her uh, connection to being with, like, the Christian
0: god. Yeah, and that's where this book can get really interesting, especially in terms of, like, the larger Stephen King mythology. Uh, because I think it's possible to get through this and realize that these characters are constantly misrecognizing as the Christian god something else entirely.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly how I read it. And I always, like, when, when I read it, you know, as a as a kid or whatever... Yeah, I, I think I realized that then and it could be that maybe I'd read a, a Dark Tower book or something uh, beforehand. Um, you know, the the thing that that I will say that you had your uh, online Stephen <laughs> King experience. I had a similar online Stephen King experience, but for specifically Dark Tower fans <laughs> that we'll talk about when we get to the gunslinger at some point. But um, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, what's interesting to me is that this gets brought into this very Christian, uh, and then a kind of American centric framework mm-hmm. of, you know, how mother Abigail understands her experience and how everyone talks about Randall Flagg. But I don't think that this is a particularly, you know, Christian God and Christian devil kind of deal. Yeah. Like they I, that these are forces beyond that. I think, or, or other than that, maybe not beyond that, but other than that. Um, and, and as you're saying, I think it ties into the broader Stephen King, um, you know, metaverse or whatever that we'll talk about as we learn more about it as we read these novels. Yeah.
0: Um, is there anything else you wanted to sort of point out about Mother Abigail? I mean, you you said in a preview, I think, in The Shining episode, right, that she is essentially the the mammy minstrel stereotype.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's... Um, uh, what's interesting is I think there's less of that in the uncut novel. Because mm-hmm. um, well, there's less in, of her in
0: general.
2: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> or, I'm sorry, in the cut novel, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the... Uh, but yeah, I mean, the uncut novel adds, what, like five or six scenes with her?
0: Um, yeah. Uh, like, that. I remember getting a lot more about sort of her life and her experiences and some weird yeah, stuff about that. Like, I, I remember more... I remember more about her bowel movements. Yeah, that's
1: not... Yeah, there, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And of... I mean, I would say the vast majority of, like, the stuff that was mm-hmm. restored are things that are either sex, violence, or uh, just Stephen King gross stuff. <laughs> He's just interested in talking... Like, bowel movements. Um, but but here we... Um, yeah, it, well, all to say, yes, right? Like, she she exists to present a um, homey uh, uh, you know a safe location for the recreation of society. Um, it's no mistake I think that uh, when people when they get mm-hmm. to Boulder um, and they're hanging out in Colorado every time a new group comes in because there's hundreds more than these characters right there's lots and lots of people who are coming into Colorado and all of them meet her before going into, you know, and and uh, kind of settling into uh, the remains of Boulder or the, you know, the, the city of Boulder, literally mm-hmm. the birth of a new nation. And I'm using that language kind of purposely passes through the body of a black woman in multiple kinds of ways. And I think Stephen King is maybe trying to be, you know, to read him as charitably as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. I think he's trying to say that that the United States mythologically has to reckon with its racial history before it can move forward. I think that's a very kind of noble way of thinking about that. On the other hand, the the way that he accomplishes that is by running it through a series of stereotypes, um, and uh, specifically of of Southern American black stereotypes, black women stereotypes that get transported to Nebraska for some reason, And, and actually King comes up with a very convoluted reason about how she ends up in Nebraska, but...
0: Right. Like the, the most we get from her in this version is like the, the long story about how her family gets out of uh, the southern United States. They moved to Nebraska. Her father like bought all this land. They made it work, damn it. Right. Like that. They they despite despite even the the prejudices of all the people around them, they made it mm-hmm. work. Yep. And her happiest moment, this is in the text, the happiest moment of Mother Abigail's life was when she uh played the guitar for a bunch of white people at a local community function. And instead of being racist to her, they applauded her. Exactly. Um, you
1: know when, when and she was like a kid when that happens to right. Mm-hmm. And so Stephen King weirdly enough like uses Mother Abigail to retroactively fix American racism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you'll notice something that doesn't show up in this book at all around uh, Mother Abigail is the civil rights movement <laughs> like, it, that has no place in this thing. So Stephen King, I think, is trying to myth quite literally mythologically fix racism in the stand. And uh, and, and in doing so, or or the tool he uses to do so, is this kind of context collapse of a bunch of different stereotypes. And so the end product is like, well, we're past that now. We fixed it all up. And this entire group of, like, you know, a Mm -hmm. controlling committee of a bunch of white people, they've got the spirit of a cool black woman inside of them. So they're going to know what to do, right? And she ultimately was the one that, you know, attached them to the will of God anyway. so you know, I think it's all out in the wash. Um, I, I think that there's actually quite a lot of intricate thought. It feels like there's a lot of intricate thought going on here in relationship to Mother Abigail race and the kind of creation of a new American mythology. And I think all of it, one level deep, inverts itself to do something much worse than it intended to. So um, I, I think you missed on that one, Steve.
0: Yeah, I, I'm glad you bring this up because I was. this is a line I was going to drop later. But like I think ultimately what is fascinating about this novel in in some way is that it is an attempt to uh recuperate a a a sense of american innocence post vietnam post watergate post civil rights right like that is first and foremost what this myth is trying to do Mm -hmm.
1: um yes yeah I oh, yeah, 100%. And and it's a little bit of like libertarian Steve mm-hmm. accomplishing that.
0: So yeah, uh, Mother Abigail uh lives in a shack in the middle of a cornfield, uh a shack on like a little like jacks or whatever, right? It's the most stereotypical thing, uh but uh people start showing up. She's like, "Ah, God's told me some stuff about you, Nick Andros. Uh you're going to be my number one lieutenant." And Nick is kind of like, "Well, that's confusing for me because I don't believe in God." Take that. Uh <laughs> Mother Abigail. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah. And, she, and she's like well nevertheless um they head off to Boulder uh and then in Boulder Mother Abigail has a moment like so as you've already said like everyone who comes into Boulder meets with Mother Abigail um because she's the person they've been dreaming about Uh, But then it's after Nadine shows up eventually and she meets Nadine and there's a kind of she senses something wrong with Nadine, but also doesn't. Maybe you can sort of unpack this a little for me. Um, She comes away from the meeting with Nadine kind of feeling like maybe she doesn't need to pay attention to that problem, but then also comes to believe Mother Abigail, that is, comes to believe that she has like somehow been presumptuous with God and upset him. And so then she goes off into the wilderness. She disappears, um, and, and disappears into the wilderness and we'll cover kind of her coming back and sort of the aftermath later, but, uh, just to get us through to a certain point in Denver, uh, That is that is that kind of like marks the turn in her relationship, because up until that point, she's like very sort of confident in her in her knowledge of God and her ability to uh, sort of divine the signs and lead everyone. Uh, And she has she's she can get very conversational with God or the way she thinks about God. Um, And then she appears to have she, she comes she she thinks that she has done something wrong and then goes off.
1: Yeah, I don't understand any of this. Um, and I think that the, I don't understand it. I, you mm-hmm. know, I think you're rightfully confused about it, too. The, I think what's happening here is that the plot's driving the bus. Stephen King mm-hmm. knows that his, like, you know, Jesus stand-in figure, which is partially what she's doing here, has to go into the wilderness, right? There's no way to do this mythologically without having her go into the wilderness and she just does it. It feels very arbitrary to me in the book. I was confused about it. I even went back and read some of the pages beforehand or maybe like, I think right after it happened, I stopped reading for the night. And so when I started back up, I was like, I think I must've missed something. And I went back to the previous chapter. It, it, I don't, I don't think that there is a coherent answer for why she decides to do it. It is just that this character, the way that it, that, they are written the way that the plot of the novel has to work she's got to go into the wilderness for a while because that has to give it otherwise mother abigail Mm -hmm. can just tell them what to do right and this is stephen king is literalizing his own plot problem here by having all the uh like main characters get together and be like (laughs) well gosh y'all um yeah. it seems like we could just elect uh, Mother Abigail as an authoritarian <laughs> religious figure and everyone uh-huh. would be cool with that. And they're like, yeah, that's true. We should probably have her have an executive veto. And they're like, yes, that will work. And then she mm-hmm. solves the problem for them by exiting the novel for a long time. So I literally think she leaves just to solve a plot and pacing problem. Because otherwise, why would you not just have her speak into existence whatever is true and then go do it? And ultimately, that's what he does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, yes, no, that is that is what it comes down to, right? Like, this is the problem where when a character in your novel is on the horn with God, like, well, like, what? why aren't? Like, what, what is God up to that he's not, like, giving us all the great uh, uh, hints here? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think literally she goes into the wilderness to kick the can down the road so he can let some wheels spin a little bit more. I mean, I think this is a big problem with the book is that, The pacing is so weird because he's trying to resolve all of these like micro novels in the meta novel or in the big novel. And some of them are just they don't need to be resolved.
0: Yeah. And I think, again, uh, Lord of the Rings is an illustrative contrast here uh, because from the jump with Lord of the Rings, we know what needs to happen. This ring needs to get to this volcano and be thrown in like everything else can sort of like you know become arborescent off of that all of the other characters um kind of uh are Mm -hmm. contained with that umbrella but here the the thing that contains all the characters is the super flu um and it is genre flip thing that we've talked about a couple of times where Mm -hmm. it starts out being this kind of straight-up science fiction-y pandemic novel. Uh, but that all turns out to be kind of a prelude or a pretext to, like, pull the rug out from under you and be like, you know, psych, this was a dark fantasy all along. Yes. But that, but the problem, right, is that the flu was the thing that contained these characters, uh, and now we just have all of these people, mm-hmm. like, working up to a conflict with no MacGuffin behind it.
1: Yeah, and it's a conflict that I, I, that is unsolvable in mm-hmm. its initial state. Like the, the way that the novel presents itself to you is basically um, you get to the midpoint of the novel. And I, I, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but this is what you said to me. Something to, I'm going to paraphrase you here. What you said to me about reading this novel first half, great. Second half, it's like watching a skateboarder in a video game hit the ground and just skid across the pavement.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's it, it reminded me of uh, the thing that happens in a Tony Hawk game where you like fuck up a trick and your guy just goes like skidding across <laughs> the map.
1: <laughs> and and uh, you can feel that in the structure of the book because uh, you you think that the stand is going to be people in Colorado. People in Vegas, all these mm-hmm. named characters, you know, having particular positions, and it's going to be like a little bit of a chessboard, right? And some of that happens. Mm-hmm. And in, and it's like they play the first eight moves of a chess game, and then someone comes up and just knocks all the pieces onto the ground. <laughs> um, because, and I guess that, that, let's talk really briefly, we've said a lot about Randall Flag already, but let's talk really briefly about Randall Flag, and we can kind of talk about the movement from boulder to the end of the book because i think that the we have talked by working through the characters we've talked about what happens in the first half really really easily and th- the back half is just kind of plotty so we we can just kind of summarize it but uh you know wh- what's up with randall flag michael
0: i mean randall flag he's the dude we're all here for in in one way or another right because uh just to let you know if you are if you're a listener who has not read a lot of stephen king if you're here because you like hearing us talk about it rather than reading it yourself um randall Flagg is in some ways the linchpin around which all of stephen king's later work is going to be built he is going to leave this novel and he is going to show up in other novels randall Flagg Mm -hmm. is the walking dude and he walks a lot he is uh uh in, in in the way that I think like if you're not a Stephen King reader, you probably associate uh, like Stephen King's ultimate embodiment of evil as like Pennywise, right? The, the, because I think Pennywise has a a, a much um, sharper like popular culture profile. Mm-hmm. Um, but Randall Flagg is really like Stephen King's arch villain. Uh, and he is uh, he is the Heath Ledger Joker. He is also uh, kind of the the Jared Leto Joker. He is also kind of the Jack Nicholson Joker. He is every Joker, mm. right? He is he is an Ur er Joker. <laughs> it's
1: very funny you just said he's not Pennywise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he is the Joker, he is, he is the Joker right? Yeah, like 100%. that's the thing. Um he he is a agent of chaos who is calculating.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He uh we we get introduced to him and I actually I think the rest of the books kind of ruin Randall flag a little bit because Randall flag is really intriguing. When we first meet him here, he, uh, he's a drifter, right? Um, again, so again, we have these parallels, Nick Andros, who is a drifter, but he's like the good drifter. Um, Randall Flagg is the bad drifter who doesn't go from town to town to work. We get the sense that he just like he he doesn't even remember his own past. Right. There's something really weird about him right off the jump. He doesn't have a good sense of who he is and he does not care. He just has like weird memories of like impossible memories. Right. He 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 remembers like going to school with Charles Starkweather. Um, he remembers writing with the KKK. Uh, he remembers like uh, helping the Weather Underground build bombs. It's suggested that he's uh, hanging out with Donald DeFries and the SLA when they come up with the plan to kidnap Patty Hurst. Uh, and he's just a guy he, he wears cowboy boots, he wears jeans, he wears a denim jacket. He's got pockets that are filled with all sorts of like ex- extremist literature. But, and this is important, it's not just like extreme right wing, right? It's the extreme left-wing, too. It's extremism of any type, right? Uh, uh, Randall Flagg is the nightmare embodiment of horseshoe theory in a lot of ways. Yeah. Talked
1: repeatedly about kind of like uh, liberal centrist Stephen King, and I think it should be instructive to everyone that his ultimate villain is just extremism of any kind. <laughs> like, any mm-hmm. political statement Yeah, that it, or any political belief that is like outside of the Overton window.
0: That's Randall Flagg. He just uh he has no ideology other than the sowing of chaos, right? Just just making everything worse is his goal. And as I already said, he doesn't he doesn't have a very clear memory of his own life. Uh the events are kind of strange. Uh but also and he he has in his first chapter, right? He's walking down the down the highway. Um and he, he always has the, the, the phrase that is always uh, re- used to describe him, right? Is that he, he looks like a man with great good humor, right? He's always smiling. He's always laughing, uh, but uh, it's always a, a mean and evil laugh. And he mm-hmm, has a sense that something is coming here in the early stages of the super flu. Something is coming and he knows it. And, and the line is sort of like, you know, why else would he, was he suddenly able to do magic? Right. He's he's suddenly gained the ability to like levitate and like see things sort of telepathically and and so on and so forth. And I think that's really cool. Right. The <laughs> idea that like there is something really neat about the initial move of here is a pandemic novel um, and it's very science fictiony and sort of, you know, grounded in in the way that it would need to be to be science fictiony. And then uh, there is something else behind kind of. This this uh, sort of materialist plot that is building right that this the the prelude right the run up to the big battle between good and evil I think is actually well executed in that sense right this idea of this guy at the brink of like total national chaos realizing it's going to happen and being like I am going to be a god in the new world.
1: Yeah, and there's something interesting too, where Mother Abigail already has God. Mm hmm. You know, like her whole life, she's religious, right? And so she is able to kind of, you know, imagine herself uh, entrained into this plot, this pre existing plot, right? Revelations, all that kind of stuff, right? Randall Flagg doesn't, right? He doesn't have an end game in his, like, whatever his life is already. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's already a fantastical creature when he's introduced, but, like, it's he does not show up and is like, I, I guess I'll be the devil. Mm-hmm. Right. He doesn't have a belief system. Right. Which, which to me is why the, the, you know, the, uh, good versus evil, God versus the devil reading in this novel and the way that it gets talked about quite a lot as that I think is a, a red herring because Randall flag doesn't show up with, with the devil in mind. And I think unfortunately yeah. the, um, the, uh, what's it called? The miniseries leans into this in a way that I find very uninteresting. Uh, into the God and the devil kind of thing. Randall flag is like some other thing. And that's why he's able to move throughout these other books as you're talking about. These other plot lines is because he's doing something else. Mm -hmm. The thing I'll add to this though, is he can do magic, but it's also magic that people with the shining can do. Mm -hmm. The only thing that he can do that other people can't is he can teleport or he can travel. We don't really know. And he can also turn into things, Mm -hmm. you know, into other creatures Um, but also that's, that's what, um, uh, Barlow could do. Yeah. And he can control the animals. The thing that Randall Flagg does the most weirdly enough is levitate. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, so there, there's something, you know, interesting to me about, um, that Stephen King wants to do fantasy, Mm -hmm. dark fantasies you're talking about, right? But he is doing it through like the toolkit of a science fiction writer. And I think that that's often what's been happening in these early novels is that he's trying to do these fantastical plots, the ghost story, um, you know, the the quite literal fantasy novel here. And But his toolkit is the, the kind of science fiction of the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, um, you know, kind of especially mm-hmm. 1960s post new wave. I don't know. There's just something interesting about how he staples these genres together and like what backbones he brings with it. Um, that, that I find really interesting, but, but like you have said about the villains of many of the, of the, uh, Stephen King novels we've read all, already, especially mm-hmm. of the shining, right? Randall Flagg's downfall is his rage and his, like the, the ability for evil to consume itself. Mm-hmm. Um, Randall flag ultimately believes that he can look everywhere at once and, uh, evil cannot look everywhere at once. It can't control itself um it, and so the the chaos inherent in evil is what is his downfall in the end do you want to talk about the back half of the novel
0: sure uh so as we have already established uh the flu comes in everyone dies we have got this like you know vast panor- panorama of of destruction and despair uh and then the characters meet mother abigail like some of the characters do and they move to boulder Meanwhile, all of the, you know, quote unquote, bad characters are conglomerating around Las Vegas, and we enter into kind of a a weird Cold War period where we get a lot of discussion of how Boulder is being rebuilt and how the new society is, is being formed. Um, And this ties in with what I said earlier about like sort of the the project of this book being to try to recuperate American innocence. Uh, Like one of the things that happens, for instance, is that uh, like the people in Boulder just adopt the Constitution of the United States as their founding document with no modifications Like none at all. You know, you you, you think there might be some things that you would want to change there, but nope, that's what they do. (laughs)
2: Uh,
0: And then they set about like reestablishing the power grid and and cleaning up the corpses and all this stuff. Uh, And it gets super, super boring because I just don't care. But we get so much about uh, Stephen King sort of thinking through like what would happen if everyone in Boulder, Colorado died and then a whole bunch of other people showed up and had to sort of re- restart the city? Um, science fiction novel, science fiction novel, science fiction novel. Yep. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, and it's very funny because of how much this becomes like Stephen King's ideal society uh, because everyone is is kind of uh, post, like not, not quite as heightened as like, hippies right it's sort of like post hippie everyone's kind of like chillaxed a little everyone rides motorcycles everywhere like you get the you get the sense for Stephen King that one of like the biggest advantages of there being a a worldwide apocalypse would be that like the the roads would be so crammed that you would have to ride (laughs) motorcycles and bikes to get through the traffic (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's it's like uh, you know it's easier to imagine the end of the world is is than it is to uh, you know imagine in the capitalism the old Frederick Jameson uh, yarn, Uh, but for Stephen King it's like it's easier to imagine uh, the end of the world than it is to imagine that bicycles and
0: motorcycles could roam free. in the world we live in and the characters kind of like you've already talked about this, right? There's a lot of discussion among the characters of like, how are we going to make our government work? And, uh, the, the book gets super frustrating for me here because it turns out all of the characters who end up on like the committee that's going to lead what they call the Boulder free zone. Uh, it's all the characters that we just talked about, right? It's Stu and Glenn and Fran and Larry and Nick and, uh, Ralph and a couple of other characters um like Sue Stern who we haven't talked about because they're just there to be kind of background noise but um it's it's frustrating because none of these people are qualified In any sense, really, and I don't say that because I'm a person who is like in love with the establishment, and I believe that uh, you know the the way the world works is pure meritocracy. It's more just like why on earth would the 700 people who have shown up in Boulder, Colorado, think that Stu Redman, a guy who worked in a Texas calculator plant, is the person who should lead them because really we don't get like a strong sense of leadership from Stu. He's just kind of like a good enough guy who doesn't try to fuck people over. And like, he's a fine guy. He's not necessarily the person who needs to lead the new society. Um, and also, like all of these people are friends with each other, right? It's like everyone just unanimous, unanimously assents to like electing Stephen King's little clique of cool people uh, to to like the, the the committee.
1: Yeah, I and I I think it's you know explained in the novel basically that uh, because they're the people who show up first mm-hmm. with Mother Abigail, they they get a little bit of prestige basically. And, and they, and I mean, the, there's so much discussion that in the novel that is dedicated to like, how are we going to make sure all of our friends get elected? But Harold isn't yes. Like that it's so, and you're right. It's just wheels spinning. Like who cares? I, I do not care about the like interpersonal conflicts of these characters. That's not what this book is about in a broad sense. And yet Stephen King Really wants it to be that.
0: Yeah. And also, I'll just say I was reading this in the run up to the election. Oof. Um, so like, again, the idea that they're just going to adopt unanimously the Constitution of the United States with no modifications. And then also, once they have sort of decided they're going to do this break, they are essentially their idea is like, well, America was basically the perfect system. Right. America had it figured out. If all of this other stuff hadn't happened, we would have been gravy. Um, so we're <laughs> yes. just going to redo that. And then their next immediate move is to start, like, talking about how to rig the elections so only their friends can get elected. And it's like, Jesus, the ideology just wafting off of the page here, right? It's it's a... Um, <laughs> It's that problem we've talked about of the Stephen King moral universe where like, yeah, you can't argue with these people because they're smart and they're good and they're good because they're smart and they're smart because they're good and they are the best people to to sort of lead this because they're the main characters. Uh, a hundred percent.
1: And and uh, again, with kind of the the ideology like wafting off the pages, you said right. The the other side of it is that the villain, and I think this goes to your point about uh, the, you know, the Watergate Ameri- you know, post Watergate um, reestablishment of American innocence has been that's been lost. There mm-hmm. is that uh, you know, these uh, th- these characters have to believe in that like good American system. Um, It it has to be there and it has to be inherent in like the bones of the nation. Um, And like, they just have no ability to think outside of that. But uh, I guess the other thing that's happening here at the same time, right. Is that Harold and Nadine, while all these characters are kind of spinning their wheels, Harold and Nadine are making choices about
0: um, how they're going to betray the Boulder free zone. So, Harold had a thing for Fran. We already covered this. Uh, Fran and Harold end up meeting with Stu. There's some tension between Stu and Harold because uh, Harold is like, oh, my gosh, he's totally going to go for this hunky East Texas uh, calculator uh, assembler over me. Um, And he's not wrong. But also there's this really bizarre, awkward scene where like Stu has to take Harold aside and be Mm -hmm. like, listen, man like I'm not after your girl right like they have to have this man to man conversation in which Fran is not included at all because she's not a person who has like uh inclinations although she she does not like Harold right she finds Harold very gross and annoying uh but anyway um she ends up uh romantically involved with Stu and Harold beco- like this is this is what snaps Harold. Harold becomes uh he, he like retreats into himself and starts like hating everyone while outwardly pretending to be a really fun, pleasant guy who takes part in local politics and local efforts, and he's also like keeping his his uh evil diary of Nietzschean uh like pronouncements. Um which uh I am I am uh just going to read some some excerpts from this so harold is you know progressively going evil more and more evil um, and he's writing all of these absurd things in his diary um, <clears throat> it is said the two great human sins are pride and hate are they I elect to think of them as the two great virtues. To give away pride and hate is to say you will change for the good of the world. To vent them is more noble. That is to say, the world must change for the good of you. I am on a great adventure. Harold Emery Lauder. And that's how everything in his little notebook is written is like these, uh, they're like these aphorisms and then his name. And again, it's it's very Nietzschean, it's very like Ayn Randian actually, and they're all written in that same weird, it's it's Andrew Ryan from Bioshock, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm Harold Lauder, and I'm here to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Is a man not entitled to Fran Goldsmith? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, 100%.
1: Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's weird and it's contri. It's it's like uh, he I mean, King can only he needs Harold to be evil. And so he's got to, like, figure out how to make that happen. Uh, but it, it's there's some real contrived
0: weirdness going on there. The other thing, right, that I think actually I should mention that makes Harold evil is that he has sexy thoughts. Um, and they're not normal sexy thoughts, uh, which is to say that like Harold is, uh, because, so we get some perspective from Harold, which is that he was a nerd, right? He was overweight. Uh, everyone made fun of him for his body. Uh, but then, and this is like one of the bizarre things that King works in this. The suggestion is that because Harold did not receive like adequate female attention, right? Because he was an incel essentially, um, his sexual proclivities went extreme like because he was not having like proper sort of like mm-hmm. you know romantic or sexual uh, interactions with like girls, he he like fell into this realm of fantasy and he began fantasizing about like uh, uh scarves and whips and leather and boots. All of these things are specifically named, right, Harold? Yes, <laughs> there's a there's a section where it like all
1: of Harold's fetishes
0: are like listed out. And it's weird because they are presented as very outré, but also in the year 2020, they are just the most bog standard, like, ways of uh, uh, conceiving, like, non-normative sexuality to the point that they are, like, the normative non-normative, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, none of them, they, all of these things are, like, mentioned on sitcoms at this point, right? Like, they were mentioned on Friends, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago at this point.
0: Right. And so I'm not saying obviously that like BDSM is just like front and center in American society, but like people know what BDSM is now. And uh, like it's presented in regards to Harold as almost this uh, like bizarre other world of, of, uh, of corruption and, and so on.
1: Yeah it's treated of a parcel with betraying the entirety of the good people aligned with God in yeah. the world <laughs> like it's 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 you know uh, it literally aligned with the the most evil figure in the world um, it, yeah, it's, it's really weird, but this is also, I just want to flag this for the billion times it's going to show up for the rest of the, uh, this show, Stephen King from here on out is going to do this mm-hmm. regularly. Characters who are bad are as- associated with non-normative sexuality, um, secrets, uh, in general. So bad people have secrets. Uh, those secrets are often mm-hmm. sexual. Um, we're going to hit some like really like fucked up especially transphobic stuff over the next 10 years or so of Stephen Mm -hmm. King's work. Um, and, uh, it's going to be all of a type. I mean, Harold's this particular thing going on with Harold is the, you know kind of dot from which a network of these kinds of associations grows for receiving right. and it
0: here it is the it, as you already mentioned right it's the it's the Heinleinian adolescent fantasy mm-hmm. um turned very very sour mm-hmm. um not to say that the original Heinleinian fantasy is not itself sour uh this is just a thing that recognizes it as such.
1: Yeah, well, and it's an interesting kind of, I guess, like uh uh like liberal American middle class moralizing mm-hmm. about it, right? So like in the Heinleinian character, right, it's gonna be like a strong, you know, strong jawed, powerful uh, dude who's smart who's gonna be in like uh you <laughs> know, a uh like a thruple and it won't be a problem because we live in you know the future mm-hmm. and like no one will judge anything about it because that's okay. Um, and like any other sexual fantasy you have, I mean, this is, you know, um, Heinlein's libertarian streak mm-hmm. to him. It, that is your God-given right to do whatever you would like to do. Um, and that, that specific kind of part of those characters here is being kind of warped into, um, uh, uh, you know, the, an evil characteristic.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so, so that's that's Harold's weakness, it turns out, right, is his uh, desire for sex, uh, because so Nadine's on the outs with Larry. She feels very kind of at sea and she knows she's not supposed to be here among these people. So she pulls out her, her Ouija board literally, yep. uh, and gets some like, uh, like vicarious orders from Randall flag, uh, essentially right. Seduce Harold. Um, have sex with him, do not have like vaginal intercourse with him, right? Remain a virgin, but you can do other things and just get him to do the thing that he is already on track to do, which is betray these people by, uh, blowing up one of their committee meetings. And Stephen King has written about this, um, before he has said, I think he writes about this in Tans Macabre actually, he had a problem here right he didn't know what his book was doing uh and he did feel like his wheels were spinning and he had too many characters uh too many plot lines that he was juggling and his way of fixing this was to just prune everything back and he did this by having the the betrayal plot line work out such that it kills off a a good portion of the main cast I mean, kind of, but not enough. I was going to say, not <laughs> not enough. It it kills off a portion of the main cast. Really, what it does is it provides a very like forced pretext for the end of the novel to happen.
1: Yes, exactly. So I I think um, who dies here? Um, uh, Nick is the big one. Nick, yeah, Nick, and then um, not Lucy because Lucy yeah. has a. This is Sustern, where I, like, have who was a character I'm gonna, I count. I'm going to like count on my
0: fingers to see. Sustern, uh, and then a bunch yeah. of other like there. There are literally a a dozen to twenty more characters who live around Boulder who we just haven't mentioned because they're just like people who are like the background color.
1: Yeah, like the guy, uh, the guy who gets drunk and smashes all the plate glass windows. Uh huh. Who probably gets four pages dedicated to him over the course of the book.
0: Right, like the guy. Yes, no. It, like these are the social problems that uh, Boulder is dealing with. Right, is the guy who drunk drives. Yeah, or
1: it was a kid who drunk drives.
0: <laughs> oh yes, yeah, the kid who drunk drives, and then yeah, uh, playing their music too loud. So yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, so uh, her, uh, or Nadine and Harold, uh, you know, uh, they make it like a dynamite bomb, mm-hmm. and they blow up the house where the committee is meeting. He kills Nick Andros, unfortunately. And at this point, Mother Um,
0: Abigail has already disappeared. So the committee has become very central to to the Boulder Free Zone. Uh, And wouldn't you know it, just as that bomb goes off, Mother Abigail returns. And word word is out that Mother Abigail is back. So a whole bunch of people come running out of the house, meaning that, you know, even though there are casualties from this event, it's not as many as it would have been. Things just kind of work out that way, you know?
1: Mm, Wow. Um. The, and the one thing I guess that's worth uh, mentioning here is that there have already been spies from the mm-hmm. Boulder Free Zone yes. who have been sent to Vegas, and, and there are three. There is a guy called The Judge who is important. And we have not mm-hmm. mentioned, because he is not important. <laughs> but the novel treats him as if he is important. So he is like an older man who used to be a judge, and he's been sent uh, just to go see what's up on the West Coast, mm-hmm. and he has been intercepted and killed. There is a woman... Dana Jergens. Um, Dana Jurgens. yeah. I'm blanking on her name, who has been sent and was found out, and she like... Does the most uh, I I think this is another Stephen King thing that we're going to see a lot of to what I can only call a cool suicide. Yeah. And that sounds like a weird thing to say, but it literally is like she is going to be harmed by Randall Flagg and tortured by Randall Flagg. And she makes this like very heroic choice to kill herself by smashing her Mm -hmm. face into a big shard of glass. Which is like, whoa, but like it's treated like as a super cool thing to have done. Um, And I guess if you're going to be tortured by uh, the most evil being in the galaxy, probably the way to go. And then Tom Cullen.
0: Yep, Tom Cullen, who can be hypnotized and sent out. Uh, and cannot be sussed out like the other spies because flag flag gets sort of like premonitions of the other two spies of both the judge and Dana. And in fact, uh just to sort of lay out Flag's situation, everyone's it's it's Fallout New Vegas. Um <laughs> it, <is.
2: laughs> it, it it is.
0: It's it's Fallout New Vegas if Caesar's Legion yeah. wins, right? Like Sorry for the video game talk. Check us out, uh, too much future on, uh, range touch or yeah, the youtube.com slash range touch, our show where we play through the fallout franchise. We'll, we'll be talking about this probably whenever we get to fallout new Vegas. Uh, but yeah, flag is running new Vegas. He's living in the, uh, like penthouse of the MGM grand or something. Uh, and he's also crucifying people on telephone poles. Again, a kind of uh, a new Vegas thing, uh, so he, he's running a kind of like authoritarian police yep. state and he calls Dana up to like interrogate her. And that's when she like does the does the window thing. Uh, and that makes him very upset because it's not a thing that he foresaw because she had a she had she's like going she she shacks up with Lloyd. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. She's, like, getting like getting her information by sleeping with Lloyd. Also, Dana's bisexual. We get a whole section on this where, like, Fran tells Stu that Dana Jurgens is bisexual. Uh, She's, like, you know, she's bi. Or, like, we get, we get the whole story. This is so weird. This is, like, the Stephen Kingiest fucking shit. Um, like, Franny is telling Stu about Dana and gives, like, Dana's entire, like, sexual awakening <laughs> where she was like dated. She dated the same guy in high school, dated him through college, but he was kind of a jerk. And then in college, she got introduced to women's lib. And like the fact that they call it women's lib tells you exactly how, like where this book is in time. Um, but then she like breaks up with the guy and becomes a lesbian. And then she realizes she's bi uh, now. And, yeah. and, and Stu, our good old East Texas boy mm-hmm. is like, bi now. Cause he doesn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> that bye is a sexuality he thinks it's like bye like goodbye uh and then also also before dana goes out on her thing like her little like spy mission she like kisses stew and it's vaguely romantic and like he's like yeah i guess she is bisexual cuz that kiss felt really real <laughs> it's i, I do did, I did not remember this but... it's it's so bizarre um uh, but anyway Steve. <laughs> Uh, Dana, Dana, our, our uh, bisexual queen, our femme fatale, she goes and she uh, is, she shacks up with Lloyd and uh, Flag can can sense her. right? He knows that there's uh, a spy and she thinks she she has an opportunity to assassinate Flag. So she hides like a knife on a, 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 a trick like pouch or something. I don't know, on her arm. Uh, but yeah, Flag,
1: the assassin's blade. Yeah. Uh, Dana was part of the assassins <laughs> and Randall Flag was the Templar. We all yes, know this. Of course. It's on the wall, Oh Wiki. my
0: gosh. Uh Assassin's Creed, uh, the stand. Um mm-hmm. so she tries to kill Flag, but he knows the knife is there because he's he's like foreseen all of this. Uh but the thing that he does not foresee is her choice to like cut her own throat with with the broken window. And that really unsettles him because then the third spy, he knows there's a third spy, but he can't see anything about the third spy because it's Tom Cullen, which is what you were talking about, how the fact that like Because of because of the way that this book conceptualizes like disability, uh, Tom Cullen is immune to Randall Flagg's magic, essentially.
1: Yeah, and it has something to do with human nature or goodness or evil or something like that. I mean, I think that's the imagination that Stephen King is working here, because we find out toward the end of the novel that the way that Randall Flagg can see these things is that literally he has like a third-person eye that's, like, floating around, and he kind of sees the world, you know, cinematically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very Eye of Sauron, literally Eye yeah. of Sauron. Yeah. Randall Flagg's sign, uh, sigil is an eyeball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we we can't be more direct than that. When he shows then, up course, in
0: earlier scenes, like, he is literally, like, he's wearing, like, when, when people see him in dreams, he's wearing, like, a, a robe with a cowl, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like. A necromancer or something. Yeah,
1: um, and then people like to uh, know that they're marked by Randall Flag. They wear like a necklace that has like a a, a gem with a like a flaw in it that looks like an eye, um,
0: right? Like a red flaw. Yeah. yeah, and so
1: this gets kind of associated back with uh, or later on with the Crimson King in the broader Dark Tower stuff. We'll talk about that when we get there. But um, but but yeah, there's something going on here with where Tom Cullen it does not have i mean this is not what i'm saying this is the imagination of i think this book tom cullen like doesn't have subjectivity in the way that other people do he does not have the potential to be evil or the potential to do bad things that other people do and so because of that randall flag does not have access to him right it's almost like the ability to be corrupted by the ring and i'm 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 not trying to make a one-to-one relationship between this novel and the Lord of the Rings. I'm sorry, the Lord of the Rings keeps coming up for some reason, Um, but it's it's a similar imagination, right? That in the same way that hobbits in the Lord of the Ring, uh, Lord of the Rings, the reason they are asked to carry the ring is that they have something in them that makes them more resistant to corruption and the you know kind of Boromir style. um uh, allure of the ring right it can still get them after Mm -hmm. a long enough time but they're resistant to it uh tom cullen is immune to whatever this dark power is that randall flag has and it's because of something inherent in him as a human being um Mm -hmm. and uh so so yeah he he's he's invisible basically to um to the Crimson King's thing. And so, or not the Crimson King, but Randall Flagg's thing. And so uh, he goes in, he finds out all kinds of information about what's going on. He's been hypnotized to do that. And he's been given explicit instructions uh, on how to return. So travel only by night, sleep off the road, uh, things like that. And has been given markers too. And so as the novel is drawing down, Tom Cullen leaves Vegas And is guided by in in visions by Nick Andros, Mm -hmm. uh, who's dead at this point. Yes. Um, So there's something interesting going on there.
0: Yeah. uh, Yeah. So that's that's sort of that's that's important because. It this is going to show exactly what is wrong with the pacing of this novel. So we have all of these things that we've been juggling. Everything has kind of slowed down. Uh, and we have these spies sent out one by one. They have either died or Tom Cullen is leaving simultaneous with this. Uh, the bomb has gone off. Nadine and Harold are on their way out and mother Abigail has returned. She returns and she has a message from God. She's been out in the desert, right? Uh, doing the, the, the sort of Jesus parallel again. Uh, and she says, you know, I was given sort of orders from God. Because she's dying, right, also because she's been in the wilderness, I think, for like two weeks or something. Uh, She says to, you know, the people who are assembled, which are, of course, all the main characters. uh, She says, the four of you, by which she means uh, Larry Underwood, uh, Stu Redman, Ralph Brentner and Glenn Bateman. The four of you need to go to Vegas now. And there has been so much hemming and hawing, like the whole thing about the spies comes out of essentially this kind of like sense uh, in Boulder that they're in a cold war mm-hmm. with uh, Vegas. So there's all this sort of sitting around and waiting and trying to figure out what happens. And then as as you sort of alluded to earlier, uh, you know, Mother Abigail is just like, "All right, story's ended now. Let's go." Yep, plots plots done. Right, like like we 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 could have like rebuilt boulder for four years while randall flag rebuilt his own uh you know plane arsenal or whatever but i'm here to tell you that the world died three months ago and you need to walk to las vegas in the clothes that you're wearing right now and make a stand against randall flag or against you know the the dark man uh and because she is literally you know speaking with the word of god i guess they're like well heck i guess we will do that thing
1: yeah, so that's an interesting okay, I'm gonna this is gonna sound like the most ridiculous thing. I know that we're going long, but I have to say this now. I don't know what the stand means. It I don't I, mean, I do not know what the name of this book is referring to. Does she say the words the stand?
0: Uh I think she says you have to make a stand. Oh. They don't, though. No, they don't. I mean they do, but in in they do in a very particular way of thinking. Like they they do in the sense of a uh, uh, Christian martyrology, right? <laughs> Which, sorry, yeah. just spoiled the end for y'all.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. But shouldn't it be called in like the sacrifice?
0: That would be in some sense more appropriate. What about yes? the second coming? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay. Well, okay, so
1: that happens, and she says, as you're saying, right? She says, All right, you have to leave right now in the clothes you're wearing. You cannot take anything with you. You gotta, like, you know, uh, gather materials on your way. And so they, like, leave. And so who leaves? Stu, Larry, mm-hmm. Glenn, Glenn, and Ralph. Ralph. Okay, so they all leave on foot. They book and it's like the middle of the night when this happens, so they're gone. Mm-hmm. At the same time as this is happening, or contemporaneously as this is happening, um, I think this is right before Tom Cullen leaves. Uh, so Randall Flag has been preparing to bomb Boulder. Mm-hmm. Uh, his plan is to train pilots to use the military equipment that is um, that is in the abandoned. Area. It has a particular name. It's an Air Force base. To train them to do it, he's got three pilots, and all three of them are are training other pilots, and the idea is for them to learn how to fly bombers and just to fly to Boulder and bomb them. Mm -hmm. Um, Trashcan Man, as you talked about earlier, is like out in the desert getting materials. Mm -hmm. There's a confluence. This is complicated in the book, but I'm just going to summarize here. There's a confluence of things that happen. Where basically the trash can man is back with some uh, like timed bombs, time release uh, incendiary devices, and these people are um, th- these like dudes because you got to remember all the evil people are hanging out in Las Vegas, right? So all these guys are like jerks <laughs> of some mm-hmm. form or fashion uh, who who are here training to um, to fly these planes. Basically, he's showing off his trash can man is showing off his weapons, and they are roasting him and making fun of him for being a firebug or whatever. And he associates that with the bullying he received as a kid. Mm-hmm. So, all that trauma that he experienced uh, way back when that you were talking about earlier in the episode. He then booby traps a huge amount of, uh, across actually several different instances, but he booby traps the army base and kills all the pilots eventually. Mm-hmm. So he he destroys on kind of like in a, a something that is you know uncontrollable to him, he destroys all of Flag's capability to go and destroy um Boulder. And so Flag then decides, well, do I want to make like a military, you know, convoy? And then, but they might not be able to get through the mountains. So what do we do? And so the idea or the problem or the concern is that now instead of immediately going and flying, you know, over the winter, because it's becoming winter right now, um, instead of flying to Boulder and destroying it with bombs in the next month, they're going to have to wait six months. And who knows what could happen in that amount of time. So what flags kind of ability to predict the future and know things is being impacted by the vagaries of human nature that he cannot see. Mm-hmm. So in another way, I guess I did not make this connection until this very moment. Trash can man is also immune to the vision of Randall flag in the same way that Tom Cullen is mm-hmm. making them both kind of parallel ca- characters again.
0: Yeah. Uh, but one of the unfortunate sort of consequences of what you just laid out is that uh the entire sort of possibility of th- threat like immediate threat that flag and his uh people represent uh is gone at about the same instance that suddenly the protagonists are on their way to initiate the end of the novel yeah
1: it's a it's a weird thing it's a bait and switch right where it's like you th- you think that there's going to be a fight here a, b- a battle of you know wills or wits or powers or something like that and it's really not there's like another game being played here that has nothing to do with the kind of war or battle that we associated with it before. Um, and at the same time, trash can man then decides to go out into the desert to find something to bring to Randall flag, to show him that he really does care, you know, to make up for the mm-hmm. violence <laughs> that,
0: <laughs> that I really do care. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Randall flag. I mean, that's I basically,
1: really you know, what what you what he's doing. And so, So we have kind of two parallel weird things going on, right? Or three, I guess. Randall Flagg not knowing what's happening in the future, which is distressing to him and weird to us as a reader. Trashcan man going off and doing something himself in a facility that we find out very quickly is nuclear. And then uh, Mm -hmm. four randos walking through, uh, you know, the mountains to go to Vegas.
0: Well, important, four randos and a dog. And a dog, that's true. Because this is our first Cotet.
1: Cotets <gasps> show up in about five years from now in the drawing of the three.
0: Yep, and uh, we'll maybe touch more on that at the end of the episode when we do some King of Earth stuff, uh, but then, so okay, so that's happened, okay, yeah, then more more things get like weirdly paced here because Harold and Nadine are on their way. Uh, Harold has a a, a motorcycle accident. Um, he goes over a cliff and he's left with a broken leg and Nadine leaves him to die because she has to go meet Flag, right? They are both on their way to join Flag in Vegas, but, uh, it's sort of suggested that, like, you know, Flag magically arranged this little accident for Harold, uh, partly because Harold has outlived his usefulness. Uh, but then also he is afraid that if Harold and Nadine spend more time together, they will eventually sleep with one another, um... So Nadine leaves Harold to die and he writes kind of his like apology/confession slash confession and uh you know then kills himself uh, with a gun um and they the cotet the the uh the four guys and the dog find him later and they put all that together Nadine meets Randall Flag in the desert um he rapes her uh it is a uh, a very gross and awful and just bizarre scene in in a lot of instances um partly because of what we've talked about before which is that Nadine kind of doesn't have interiority in the way where um I have a good idea of what it was she even expected to happen no yeah absolutely uh, like just in term and I'm not saying like this is like on her in some way but it's sort of like I knew this wasn't going to be good me the reader But I don't know what she thought it was going to be that might have been made it make more sense in terms of why this would be a thing you would pursue.
1: Yeah, because there's a way of writing her, uh, you know, in the way that, you know, know, to reference another Stephen King, um, you know, reference text in Dracula, right, where. Uh, the women who are seduced or enchanted by Dracula, they understand what is happening and have like a set of goals and reactions, mm-hmm. right, to that. Nadine doesn't even have that, right? She, you know, it's like you were talking about earlier. She's kind of carried by the winds of fate. Um, and and she has no position toward Randall Flagg at all.
0: Yeah, right? She's like, just period. He, yeah, she's just like, oh, it's just, it's him, right? Uh, this totally weird, like, devotion to just like, The possibility of him, uh, even as so, I don't know. Anyway, that happens. Um, She is rendered catatonic by the experience because uh, it's it's a a really gross Stephen King sex scene that is, you know, also a rape and like flag is not human. uh, And we get implications about that. And it just she's out of the book, essentially, but she is pregnant. So
1: yeah, the interesting thing I guess about this whole thing too is that uh, that uh, that Randall Flag his relationship to Nadine is also this whole thing is fucked up. I guess is uh-huh. what I'm saying, right? Because we don't really have an understanding of like why he wants to have a child because this exactly. is faded, right? Like this is the whole thing here is that both of these characters, even though he's in- extremely powerful both of these characters are carried on the winds of fate and the winds of fate are Stephen King decided this needed to happen. And so this is just an excuse. I I think, I mean, I really do think that this just runs into um, an excuse to talk about, like you're saying, the inhumanity of Randall Flagg. Literally, he is something other than a human being. And Mm -hmm. also Stephen King's a horror writer. This is not a Mm -hmm. horror book, like even remotely, even a little bit. And this is the one scene where I would say that the kind of gross, uh, violent, uh, you know, uh, oppressive. And I mean, you know, like there's no room to breathe in this scene. Um, mm-hmm. This is where Stephen King is stretching his legs as far as all of that kind of horror writing is concerned. Um, so, y- yeah, I, uh, it, it doesn't fit in the novel, but it also doesn't fit in the novel in the way that Nadine's entire plot doesn't fit in the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, you could cut all of this out and it would not change the rest of the book at all, like
0: even a little bit. Well, and that sort of, to the to the sort of like thing that I was uh, sort of angling at and then sort of like the problems of the back half of this thing. So Nadine is both catatonic and pregnant. She's carrying, you know, the antichrist or whatever. Uh Randall Flag takes her back to Vegas. He's like, "Ah, here's my wife, guys. Like take take care of my my catatonic pregnant wife within like a day of being in Vegas, Nadine stops being catatonic at least enough to kind of like irritate randall flag because he's finding out about all the stuff with trashcan man and uh um someone under someone uh points out tom cullen as a spy right it's a girl named julie julie lawry whom uh nick and tom met early on in the book and she is not treated well she's like a in in the classic tradition of stephen king uh just not really writing great women characters with with emo- emotional depth. Um, Julie Rout Ra- Lowry is an evil woman and she's evil because she's a teenager and she's vain and she's interested in boys and self-centered and so on. She recognizes Tom Cullen. so they know Tom Cullen is a spy by this point he's already gone. Flag senses that things are getting out of his control. And then Nadine is like, you know, Things are going out of your control, blah, 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 blah. Like you're, you're going to fail. And then flag in kind of his rage, uh, like throws her from the penthouse balcony, Mm -hmm. um, and kills her and his like unborn demon child. So again, like I have no idea what it is. Randall, like, Part of what this is what part part of what makes Randall Flagg work is that he doesn't really have a plan. I don't know what his vision for the world looks like because he is just so sort of confident in the fact that like the arc of history is is making him ascendant. Um, but then also I don't know what sort of the stakes are for him not having this child. That he has spent like we have spent two-thirds of this book leading up to the point where like Randall Flagg wants a son, the son's out of the picture now. So what?
1: Yeah, the uh, I I mean, I think one thing here, right? I guess it's two things happening at once. Um, On one hand, it's like you have talked about several times on the show so far or not this episode, but the show in general, which is that, you know, evil undoes itself. Right. Evil cannot maintain the Mm -hmm. plot (laughs) in a a basic way. Right. So Mm -hmm. even though he's put all this work into, you know, producing a child, um, he that can be undone. Just as quickly, right? And, I, I mean, God, it's just a Stephen King thing to have that produced by a woman nagging him too much. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, like good God. Um, but on the other hand, something that we didn't talk about uh, earlier is that St- I think it's Stu who says that uh, most of the world's nerds are going to go to Randall Flag.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so uh, they, so he knows that, that Vegas is going to – or believes that Vegas is going to have electricity. They're going to have, like, computational power first. They're going to be able to get – the military base is up and running again. And all that is true. I mean, Stu was correct that mm-hmm. all the nerds did go to Randall flag. But so, so I think that what's being presented here, right. Is that, that w- w- the thrust of Randall flags desire here is to recreate the world as it was, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the potential rebirth or, or new birth of uh, an American myth and, and an innocent America comes only from, the Colorado free zone or whatever it is, the Boulder Mm -hmm. free zone. It can't ever come from Randall flag. And so I think that, that I, this is too thin to be the intent, but the practicality or, you know, the reality of the novel is such that the big world that, that everyone lived in before the plague was undone by the hubris and greed of the the technocrats in power, right? The corrupt Mm -hmm. politicians, whatever. Randall Flagg is undone by the exact same thing, except for in place of the state, you know, in in place of the military industrial complex, there's just one dude. And so I think Mm -hmm. the, the desire here is to depict a world in which in the macro or the micro, that way of approaching the universe is going to fail. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's the idea. Whereas you need an entirely different approach in order to create a new good America. Now, unfortunately, and this happens at the very end of the novel, the way that that is done or communicated is basically like, what if one man, his pregnant wife, or no, one man, his wife, and their brand new child, what if they moved to Maine mm-hmm. and no one else lived around them? So there's this like, you know, uh, pioneering American horseshit ideology <laughs> that's like replacing the technocracy. I don't know if that, I think that's any better, but... Um, I, you know, it really is like small town, Maine versus the technocracy, uh, in, in the final calculation. So that's all to say, I think that's, what's going on with Randall flag here, right? Is he is the, 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 he is just the recreation of the same old thing. And the same old thing is untenable no matter who is at the helm. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So yeah, that, uh, that's happened. Uh, like everything that flag represents, it's all falling to pieces. Uh, and I think I think your read on that is is correct, right? It is thin. Uh, but I think you are just spot on in that. Randall Flag is this weird. We talked about how he's like extremism on both sides, right? And this is represented by the fact that he sets up shop in Vegas which is already kind of a a loaded decision in terms of like, where are all the evil people in the post-apocalypse going to go? Oh, Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we find out that he has uh, made drug use illegal and that the penalty for using drugs is to be executed. Mm -hmm. And I think they also mentioned that he's Mm -hmm. like outlawed sex work or something. So it's this bizarre thing where he is simultaneously like aligned with What we might think of as as, is from a a sort of bourgeois or middle class perspective, right? Like the the most alarming, like points of of uh, moral degeneration of of the United States uh, with gambling and in Vegas and all that. But then also he's this bizarre, like right wing authoritarian Mm-hmm. uh who is going to pull all of the the silicon valley types into his orbit. And he also says uh,
1: that he's going to create a secret police so there's this kind of nazism, specific mm-hmm. nazism or or I guess sovietism, right? Uh, you know, that's yeah. that's the other half of it. We got to remember this is 1979. Um those are in the background. Soviet Union does not show up in this book like at all. Yeah. Which is really weird for 1979, but Yeah, Um, but anyway, sorry. But but yeah, absolutely. He's kind of this fantasy of of the far left and the far right from the position of the middle.
0: Mm hmm. Uh, So, yeah, that's that's all there. And then uh, the Stu, Larry, uh, Glenn and Ralph and Kojak, the dog are walking to Las Vegas Uh, along the way. Stu falls down and hurts his leg. He breaks his leg, so they have to leave him Uh, and he lies in a pit for a while kojak the dog stays behind uh the dog is important i'll I'll just outline this briefly because when the flu came through it also killed the majority of companion species for humanity Mm -hmm. but the ones that are like quote-unquote closer to humanity so like dogs die of the flu cats don't like that's that's the level that we're working on here (laughs) Uh, And so the fact that Kojak uh, survived the flu as a dog, it means he's like special and unique. And when they find um, a lady dog at one point in the novel, it's really uh, it's a big deal in Boulder because it means like we can have puppies again. But anyhow, uh, Kojak stays behind to kind of guard Stu. And the, the remaining three guys, they are walking to Las Vegas. They get picked up by one of Flag's patrols because he knows that uh, Boulder has sent an envoy. And he doesn't know why. That irritates him, too. He doesn't understand why they're coming to him. Uh, but he has them arrested. And he decides as a kind of move to sort of... It, it, the other thing that's happening in Vegas is that we know that uh, people are starting to talk. People know that Flag's wife died. And they know that Trash Can Man blew up all the... Uh, planes. So, Flag wants to kind of uh, assert his dominance through this big display of power. And his idea for this is he's going to execute uh the mm-hmm. three guys from Boulder in front of everyone. And at this point, the book gets interesting because it becomes a like Cecil B. DeMille sword and sandals uh, yes. epic, yeah. right? Like, it's it's like the 1940s, 1950s vogue for like big Christian epics, uh, uh, but retranslated into like the milieu of post-apocalyptic Las Vegas. Yeah,
1: the other thing here too is that people are not just talking, but they're leaving. Mm-hmm. So he's literally losing his population base, and like some people are trying to leave and go to South America. Um, and, uh, and he knows about all these things and he's like marking them, you know, in his, in his mind, but yeah, they show up here, they're caged and shirtless. I mean, you know, very sword and sandal, like you're talking about. And then, um, you know, they're going to be, ex- they're going to be, I think pulled apart. Is that true?
0: Yes, he he and this is again like the it feels very biblical because he has their limbs chained and he's going to like drive like their the chains are connected to their limbs and then to vehicles and the vehicles are going to drive away and like pull the guys apart. Uh Glenn is dead by this oh, point yeah. because uh he uh talks back to Flag while he has him in prison and then uh Lloyd shoots Glenn.
1: And uh, so, as this is happening, as this is all, you know, the crowd is gathered. They're they're all watching. Trashcan Man rolls up with a nuclear device and detonates it. Well, he
0: doesn't detonate it. Well, it detonates. It detonates. A, a nuclear device was detonated. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, we need to talk about what detonates it. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, so Flag, who is by this point, you know, doing like full scale like devil shit, uh. So he's going to do this big execution. There's a guy who stands up in front of everyone, uh, one of the Vegas people. And he's like, stop this. Stop this madness. Don't you remember? We are Americans. Just to show that there are good people Mm -hmm. on, uh, you know, on on all.
1: On both sides. Are you saying that they're they're fine people on all sides? On,
0: on all sides, right? There are, there are some people who, you know, uh, become uh, demonic authoritarians because they just genuinely believe it's the right thing to do. But they love America just as much as us.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So this guy's like, oh, don't do this. We're Americans. I'm, I'm imagining him as like Jimmy Stewart or something. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We're Americans. We're all Americans. Um,
0: and Randall Flagg is like... Uh, shut the hell up and uh, uses his demon powers to like zap him with magic electricity and it kills him but then like his orb of lightning that flag has unleashed then starts floating around on its own and it becomes the, sh- it takes the shape of a hand and it touches, it floats down and it touches the, n- the nuclear warhead and detonates it. And both Larry and uh, Ralph are like seeing this and they're like, do you see it? It's the hand of God. And uh, then they get annihilated in, in the nuclear explosion. Uh, by this point, Tom Cullen, who has escaped Vegas, uh, has found Stu uh, laid up um, in his pit and they are sort of making their way back to Boulder and they see the explosion on the horizon. Um, And that sort of leads us into kind of like the tale of the novel. But yeah, that's that's what we're all leading up to. That's how everything gets resolved. I sure took a stand. (sighs) Yeah,
1: I don't know. It's a weird ending to the novel. And I'm curious Mm -hmm. about how other people take it. Like, I get it in all its mythological and symbolic functions. Like, because ultimately the way that good triumphs over evil is not by playing evil's game. Right. Mm -hmm. It's about being steadfast in the face of what the bad people do. I get it. I get this kind of like religiosity of it. Um, But golly, is it, you know. It doesn't have well, like the uh, normally when that happens religiously, and I'm thinking of something like you know the Job right in the Bible mm-hmm. right. The it, uh, there's like a rationale that is presented, and it, and mm-hmm. like you don't get it because you know you're talking to the whirlwind or whatever. But but mm-hmm. there's something going on.
0: We don't even get that <laughs> in this book. Um, no, it's it's literally like like to to sort of like step back and think about this like the the god of this novel one killed 99% of the world's population through by 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 sort of like just allowing a plague to happen then among the survivors, they separated in, the survivors in America, at least. Who knows what was going on in Canada? Maybe there was a stand happening in every country. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> local right? rainbow flag number 28.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but at least in America, people get sorted into, um, you know, Gryffindor, or Slytherin. Yep. And then uh, then uh, all the Slytherins get blown up. Uh, but then it also turns out that, like, everyone might be a little Gryffindor and might be a little Slytherin. The sense, I guess, is that from a religious sense, from a religious perspective, it doesn't matter that it was a bad ending to a novel because it was God's plan. And you just need to go along with God's plan. The problem is that God's plan was Stephen King's plan, and Stephen King's plan was, I really need to end this novel.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a novel.
0: <laughs> um, right.
1: And yeah, it, it it boggles me how popular, I mean, I guess I don't get it. I don't get how, why this book is so popular and remains so popular. It is a page turner. I will say that. Like, you, you are mm-hmm. interested to find out what happens across the board. But also, what happens is not particularly interesting <laughs> in a general sense. But also, maybe I guess what I should say is that Stephen King, as we've talked about several times before, notorious for not being able to end a novel. Mm-hmm. And this is maybe one of the most clear examples of that.
0: Yeah, because so even even sort of what you were talking about before, about how there's kind of like two visions for the new America, one in Boulder and one in Las Vegas, even after the Las Vegas one has been wiped away, uh, Boulder fragments. Yes. And people are starting to leave because now that there's kind of not this polarity at work, um. You know, people are just kind of like, well, you know, I don't have to be here because uh, I need to stand against the forces of evil that are gathering in the West. I can go kind of look around and do whatever. And then we get this we get this like brief mention that there's like a a guy running for a local government position in Boulder who is uh, he was on the good side. Right. But also he's a former cop and he's got kind of some, uh, you know, Las Vegasian tendencies to him in that Mm -hmm. he can be a little more authoritarian uh, than than the free zone has has been um and it's just kind of like okay right like we did all that work to bring a problem or kind of this like big mythological symbolic problem to our attention and then we diffused a situation and the problem is still actually there
1: yep can't fix america
0: (laughs) yeah well i mean so the just to tell us what happens at the end um Tom Cullen, like, drags Stu back to Boulder um, as as Winter comes on uh, through kind of psychic visions and conversations with Nick Andros. Tom Cullen gets medicine, helps Stu with, like, the pneumonia that he gets – And they get back to Boulder and they find out that Fran uh, has had her baby. Um, The father of the baby was Jesse, her ex-boyfriend, her crappy ex-boyfriend from the beginning of the novel. And for a while, it looks like her child didn't get a full immunity. Uh, But then it bounces back and she and Stu and the baby can be a happy little family. And they're like, well, let's let's move back to Maine, as you as you say. Right. That's what they want to do now that they've faced all of this is go back to Ogunquit. And the other thing that is uh, weird is that you hear where all of the, some of these other characters, you hear where they're going, and they are also going to, like, South America. Like, they talk about it like they're going on vacation. Yeah. Right? They're like, well, now that we've defeated Randall Flagg, I'm going to go to, like, Acapulco. For the weekend. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's just like, what are you expecting to find there? Like, everyone died. What on earth? Yeah. Right? Yeah, everyone died, and it's going to be, like,
2: have
1: y'all thought about farming? Like, life is going to be really hard for everyone. You can't just live on canned food for the next 40 yeah. years, you know what I mean? You have to, like, I don't know, come up with some means of production somewhere. Um, so, yeah, it's a little a little fast and loose uh, at the end. And notably, I think what's interesting about our version, uh, you know, the cut version, is that there is an ending I mean, I, I, I think we've been pretty good about Mm -hmm. not uh, talking about the, the explicit stuff from the extended version, but the end of the extended version is different. The end of the extended version Mm -hmm. has like a coda where Randall flag appears in like a quote unquote primitive Mm -hmm. tribe and is like basically the devil, you know, he is like going to lead them and it's going to cause the exact same issues, um, that the world had before is the idea, at least in my memory. It's been a long time since I've read it. Um, That's not here. Like this book ends with, we are going to go back to the American heartland of Maine. Uh, Somehow it is both
0: and live there. Yeah. It's this bizarre movement of like, well, the next natural thing to happen is this like weird settler colonial fantasy of like, just, we're just going to go repopulate America. Like we're just going to do that. Like we're going to, um, and Fran has like, she asks Stu, and this is how this book, this version of the book ends, right? She asks him basically like, do you think people have learned anything from all this? And Stu thinks for a moment. And then he, the last lines of the book, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and that's where we end. Um, so again, right. It's, it's this interesting thing where, uh, on the one hand, there is kind of this, uh, clear sort of moralistic universe that operates to some extent in Stephen King's fiction. And then when the rubber meets the road, uh, we get glimpses of what I've called that kind of nihilism or pessimism in him where he, he can, he can imagine all of these things and he can talk forever about sort of the moral universe that he wishes existed. And then nevertheless at the end of the book he's kind of like oh, maybe it's all going to go to hell anyway and then of course the end of the uncut text where Randall Flagg explicitly just basically gets regenerated or reincarnated in another form um, indicates that that kind of uh, more cyclical view of, of the world yep well that's kind of the
1: whole thing let's uh, run through some of our favorite segments such as my favorite kingism which I forgot to do but Michael you've got a quote here
0: Yeah. uh, So Kojak the dog um, early on in the book, he's hanging out with Glenn Bateman. Then he gets uh, they they leave him behind. Glenn and Stu uh, sort of like get together and they're like, let's travel to Nebraska or whatever. Uh, And they leave Kojak behind because they think for some reason that they can't travel with a dog. But Kojak, because he's like just the best little dog in the world. This is this is the closest that Stephen King gets to Dean Koontz. Um, <laughs> Dean Koontz, if you have not read Dean Koontz, loves him some hyper intelligent companion animal uh, shenanigans. Oh, yeah. Like every single, uh, like almost every single Dean Koontz book will have a dog in it, and that dog will be like. Uh, For some reason, sometimes it just happens, right? Sometimes there's a plot reason and sometimes it just happens. That dog will be, like, super intelligent, super loyal, and, like, an embodiment of all good qualities. And it Um, has, like, a
1: POV section. Uh, Yeah. uh, Stephen King does, I think it's an Under the Dome that has, uh, like, an intelligent perspective character that is
0: a dog. That's, like, plot critical. I think it's Under the Dome. But, but yes. No. Yeah, so anyway, Kojak, um, Kojak ends up showing up in Boulder. Uh, after they've gotten there, and they're like, "Oh, holy crap!" And then they find the, and they like check, and like, "Yep, it sure is Kojak." And then we get Kojak's kind of uh, point of view, where he, after uh, Glenn and Stu left, he basically just followed them across the across the country, and he gets to Mother Abigail's house because he's following their scent trail. And when he gets to Mother Abigail's house, everyone else is already gone, um, but Randall Flag is sending like wolves and weasels after Kojak. Uh, And he's, like, fighting them as he's, like, going through the wilderness doing his incredible journey thing. And he gets some scars from this. And during the bit where we're getting uh, Kojak's cross-country journey, uh, we get kind of the—we get all that, and then we get sort of the end where suddenly the— perspective voice right the narrative voice after telescoping back then telescopes further this is about the midway point of the book um talking about those scars that kojak got quote even when he was an old old dog and kojak lived another 16 years long after glenn bateman died those scars would pain and throb on wet days now i pulled this out not because it is a particularly like good sentence but because it is an example of something we Amazingly, have not talked about so far on this show, um, which is the the Stephen Kingism, right? The King prose oddity of just like offhandedly telling you that a character is going to die pages and pages before it ever happens. Um, and yeah, he what,
1: hasn't. I mean, this might be the first real instance.
0: No, no, we had it's one not? in Carrie. Oh, there's a bit in Carrie where they first get to the prom and he's talking about these two uh, sort of supporting characters that are doing this, that and the other. And then the that section ends with like they would both be dead by midnight. Oh, okay, <laughs> right. Um, And so this is this is a thing like I would say probably in terms of like. Kingisms. this is one of the most remarked upon is him doing this thing. And I pulled it out. Um, it, this isn't even the only time I think he does it in this book, uh, mm-hmm. but I did it because it's kind of so most of the time he does it uh, like in Carrie where he's like, it's these characters at prom and he's like, both of them would be dead by midnight. It's usually mm-hmm. very clear that like this person that you like, guess what bucko they're going to die like soon, real soon. Uh, what's interesting to me about this one is that uh, by mentioning that Glenn Bateman is going to die, uh, he doesn't actually tell you how Glenn Bateman is going to die uh, because Glenn, Glenn is an older dude and he might have just died normally. But it's very interesting to see how it shows up here where we're talking about Kojak and how long Kojak is going to live and that he's going to outlive Glenn Bateman, who was his kind of like first owner within the text. Um, and yeah, so that's that's the kingism. Yeah, what they do to Kojak is fucked up they left that dog for no reason. It was He's like one of the only dogs remaining on the earth. It's so weird. It was so confusing to me because I'm like, what do you mean? You can't you can't travel down the roads with a dog? What? Put him in a backpack. I see people do it all the time. Right? I've seen
1: Instagram before. <laughs> it was the 70s. They couldn't they couldn't imagine transporting a dog. Yeah, Um <laughs> Yeah, uh, Kingaverse stuff. Uh, we-, we talked about a little bit of this with Randall Flag. Mm-hmm. Are there other Kingaverse references?
0: I mean, I mentioned the Cotet, and I'll just tell you what that mm-hmm. word means. Uh, it's going to—it's a—it's a—a fantasy term, right? It's a lore term from the Dark Tower universe uh, that describes a, a group of people who are fated to be together and go on a journey together. Um, and that is like, that is explicitly what happens in the stand with, uh, Stu and Larry and Ralph and Glenn, because mother Abigail is like, guess what? You are going to go on a journey together.
1: Yeah. And it means like fate group. Yeah. Ka- Ka is like a wheel, mm-hmm. as we all
0: know. Yeah. Ca is fate, right? Cause like fate mm-hmm. or destiny or whatever. And it works like a wheel. And then the Tet is um... the group.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that shows up in this book. The Shining, I guess, mm-hmm. as a concept. Um, but this is, I would say, that um, this is the seed from which a lot of stuff grows. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I would say that is that, you know, part of the cut content from this book is that the government facility that that the virus comes from, that Captain Trips comes out of, is explicitly a shop facility. mm mm-hmm. Um, the shop is Stephen King's kind of like short-lived because they only appear in a few books, but kind of short-lived sh- shady government CIA plus mm-hmm. kind of organization. They'll show up a couple of different times, but that's one kind of thing here. The Shining is another. Uh, and then Randall Flagg kind of expands into his own like micro universe of stuff mm-hmm. um, out of this. Well, it's time for your favorite part now, Michael. Uncle Stevie's mixtape that's the the bass is too loud (laughs) all right so there's one song that is so big in this in this book and you know what i think at we're at a a little bit more than three hours and 20 i'm sure some of this will get cut out but uh this is our longest episode of anything yet
0: yeah yeah i just want to say that i mean i it just feels like it would have to be let's continue you're right And uh, baby, can you dig your man? This is Larry Underwood's hit song uh, that has an awful title uh, in, in kind of a way. I how is. I don't even know how to talk about this song because it is so weird. Let me put it this way. If you're going to have a character who's going to write like a number one hit song in a novel it should at least sound plausibly like good.
1: Yeah. Baby Can You Dig Your Man. There's no other song title that's like that. Um, and uh it doesn't sound good. Anytime I would say that anytime that Stephen King is writing lyrics or writing about fictional music, it's not
0: good. Let me let me just read some some lyrics here too. You yeah, because there are lyrics in um, the book, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's sort of like weird, it's a weird song cause it's kind of without genre in, in this, in this way. Uh, although I, I will say that like my first impression upon reading this book for the first time and I still get that impression is that it's supposed to be kind of a, an R and B or like soul song, yeah.
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is at least partly why everyone like is talking when they're talking to Larry about it. They're like, Oh, you sound black. Um, yeah, it's
1: supposed to be like, I think I took it to be like the
0: Sean like mm-hmm. that kind of song. Yeah. Uh, So just this is how this song goes. But baby, you can tell me if you can, baby, can you dig your man? He's a righteous man. Tell me, baby, can you dig your man? I know I didn't say I was coming down. I know you didn't know I was here in town. Baby, can you dig your man? He's a righteous man. Baby, can you dig your man?
1: Yeah, I have no idea. And so what's interesting, we're going to talk about this on the uh, on the bonus episode, and we have a guest who is a musician I'm definitely going to ask about, uh, the, <laughs> but that's interpreted in the miniseries. And I believe you told me, Michael, this might still be true or it might not be true, but this episode, the day it drops, will also be coming out on the same day as the new Stand miniseries. Is that still the case? Not
0: the same. Not the same day. It will come out, uh, this episode, if all goes according to plan, will drop at the beginning of the week, Mm. uh, and the first episode of the new stand miniseries will drop at the end of the week. Gotcha.
1: So, and and I'm assuming it has to also have an interpretation of maybe can you dig your man? So Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe we can compare those on the, uh. Well, we'll talk about them at least. But yeah, I always took mm-hmm. the chorus here to be like, baby, can you dig your man? You know, like that kind of 1960s, mm-hmm. 1970s track, but that doesn't track with the rest of the song. You cannot sing right. the rest of those lyrics to any beat like that, right? Like a slower yeah, r and no, song, it, so. I don't know. It doesn't
0: fit. No, it doesn't. Thumbs down,
2: <sighs> Tell Larry. me
1: about <laughs>
0: Yeah. Thumb, thumbs down, Larry. Uh, tell me about Chuck Berry.
1: Okay, so yeah, back in USA. So this is one other thing I guess to say about Uncle Stevie's mixtape. This is Steve unhinged. Like uh-huh. there's so many lyrics that are done done here. So there's a lot of epigrams, whereas where he that's a place where Stephen King likes to use a uh, a, a song lyric. We're going to see that a lot. And there's a lot of lyrics that are just mixed into in songs that are mixed into the text itself um i had to read this book in like every waking hour that i could read so i didn't always have something to write down with and so the list that we have is the one that you have compiled which that, that looks complete to me um mm-hmm. but uh yeah i listened to back in the usa by chuck berry it's okay it sounds like a chuck berry song in that it sounds like it's ironic it sounds like chuck berry's making fun of whatever he's talking about but i don't think uh-huh. he is um you know that's every chuck berry song but uh you know Maybe he should have listened to his cousin Marvin.
0: <laughs> if If Back to the Future had never happened, we never would have gotten the stand. Wow. Wait, no. Oh, what? This
1: book came out before Back to the Future. <laughs> I didn't even know they made things before then. But uh, yeah, this song is good. It's fine. It sounds like Chuck Berry's song.
0: don't fear the reaper
1: oh i'm sorry this was me too so don't fear I was gonna the reaper. say you got a couple in a row yeah know. by blue oyster cult um could you be more on the nose steve mm-hmm. i mean <laughs> uh what, what's interesting to me i guess by this is that this is steve just enjoying uh blue oyster cult before the post ironic enjoyment of blue o- blue oyster cult with uh more cowbell mm-hmm. so yeah it's good yeah uh, it's a fine song. I like Blue Öyster Cult, I guess, and I also have "Stand by Me" by the Drifters. Now, is this Drifters version the one that we normally hear when we hear "Stand by Me"?
0: No, I think the version that I, the the version that I tend to think of when I think of hearing this song is one recorded by Ben E. King. That's what I thought. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, I think yeah. this version's better. Interesting. Why mm-hmm. is that?
1: Uh, because they, it has more of a. Uh, uh, the Benny King version has a much more upfront vocal, obviously, because it's, you know, a single singer, even though it's got backing vocals on it. This Drifters mm-hmm. version is more of a full complement version.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I, I, as I was listening to them, I clicked through both, and I think I, the Drifters one is is pretty good.
0: Okay, that's interesting. And um, I did look this up. Uh, Ben E. King was a member of the Drifters. So it's Uh. like this is one of those things where like he he recorded the song with the group, but then also recorded a a sort of like more solo or like hymn centric version. So
1: gotcha. That makes a lot of sense, because when I listened to them, I was like, dang, this this lead vocal sounds very similar. But I didn't know if it was just. Uh, the Benny King, you know, mimicking the vocal out of the Drifters version or whatever. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit more of a flatter sound, but, but I think that's, uh, I don't know. It's an interesting version of the song. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
0: the song I did uh, was In the Garden, which is a gospel traditional song from the early 20th century. Um, I guess this is a banger as far as this sort of thing goes, because if you have at least, I guess, uh, grown up in kind of the same uh, environment as I have, you have heard this song. It's got a weirdly, I feel like, uh, memorable chorus, uh, which is, you know, and he walks with me, and he talks with me. Do you know what I'm talking about, Cameron? I do not. I oh, okay. I did not grow up in this context. I <laughs> have no idea what this is, and I've never heard it before. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's it's a, a a sort of like this song has been covered by everyone, right? Like Merle Haggard has done it, uh, Presley has done it, um, Alan Jackson, uh, and it's about sort of meeting, like going to the Garden of Eden and meeting Jesus there, gotcha. and. The, the chorus is always um, it's a uh, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy that we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known.
1: Alan Jackson's saying the word tarry.
0: Yep. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next song I had after that is Sandman by the band of America who, you know, more famously have sung about horses with no name. Uh, but in the context of this novel, uh, the the lyrics of this song are made to refer to a man with no real name. That is to say, Randall Flagg, right? Um, and I'm just going to read, again, the chorus of this song to you because it is great. And well, actually, I, yeah, I should say, uh, I gave the gospel traditional song In the Garden three stars. Sure, it's a good version of that. Um I want to read the, the lyrics here because they are both incredible and just stupid. I understand you've been running from the man that goes by the name of the Sandman. He flies the sky like an eagle in the eye of a hurricane that's abandoned. Abandoned rhymes with Sandman? In in this like not quite rhyming way that I actually really like in terms of how this uh, this chorus sounds right. I really love how um, it like almost trips over itself mm-hmm. uh, and the song, of course, sounds very much like America. It sounds like, uh, you know, horse with no name. And it, it, it's kind of like a, a sort of very melancholy, but still vaguely psychedelic thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the lyrical content here, obviously, is kind of ominous, right? I think it fits with Flag for that reason. I give it four stars, but also I just love the idea of a hurricane that's abandoned.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot to give a star rating. So let me go back in here. Back in USA, three stars. Don't Fear the Reaper, four stars. Stand by me, five stars. Mm-hmm. There we go. All right. Um, I got Jungle Land by Bruce Springsteen. It is the, um, the last song on Born to Run. Uh huh, it's rad. Uh huh, it's a good song. It's like nine minutes long.
0: Uh, I was gonna say, I feel like this is this is interesting because it is both sort of like the most extensive Uncle Stevie's mixtape we've gotten so far, really, but also easily the best. Oh yeah, yeah. I think
1: st- <laughs> I think this is where his musical taste gets good, and maybe just music is good by this point, right? Like nineteen seventy nine. Nineteen seventy nine is about the time, especially going into the next five years where Stephen King is going to become nostalgic for the music that was, that existed 10 years beforehand. <laughs> like Stephen King never heard like a, uh, like a Duran Duran song. He didn't hate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the, as we go into the eighties and nineties, we're going to get more and more like dad rock. And it's just because Stephen King doesn't like contemporary music except for Motley Crue. But, uh, this song is great. Uh, four stars.
0: Mm-hmm Uh, My next song was American Tune by Paul Simon. Uh, This song is in all ways inferior to American music by the Violent Femmes. One star. Okay.
1: Well, good to know. Oh, gosh. I can't believe Uh the devil himself, and I'm not talking about (laughs) Randall (laughs) Flagg.
0: Oh, it's uh it's Mr. Bob Dylan, ladies and gentlemen. He's with us tonight with a song called Shelter from the Storm, which uh I because Cameron had to do the 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 summary here, I decided to take this bullet for him and review a Bob Dylan song. Uh it sounds very much like a Bob Dylan song. I think that this would be a great song to play at the end of Milo and Otis uh when they all have their little children who look like them, two stars. <laughs>
1: Dang, Milo and Otis, that'll get you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just that that's sort of what the song is about, right? It's about like uh, traveling and after a long time, finally, you know, finding someone who will give you shelter from the storm. So and that, it has that kind of mood about it. I'm like, yeah, no, this is like the end of Milo and Otis when they're friends again and they have their little families. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and then the final song, um, and this was also mine. This is Boogie Fever by the Silvers. Hmm. Um, and this is a very bizarre song to to describe, uh, because almost certainly you have heard it before, but you would not necessarily know that you have heard it. It it's it's hyper-real uh to me, because if I were to tell you that there and this was of course like a, a kind of trend at this time, um if there was a group that was like the Jackson 5, um, but were not as distinctive, nevertheless they have recorded songs that you have heard in countless shoe commercials. What would that song sound like? It would sound like Boogie Fever by The Silvers, um, because that's like that is just what this song is. And that's like where I have heard it is in commercials or like, you know, in the mall when malls still existed. Uh, And it's Hmm. here primarily because it's a good opportunity to make a flu joke.
1: Oh, yes, because of boogie, Boogie Fever.
0: Right, because it's like it's like a dancing fever that everyone is catching.
1: Well, I'd rather have that than the super flu.
0: Yep. Uh, oh, and I didn't. it's uh, two
1: stars. Uh, interesting thing uh, that we didn't mention earlier about the end of the novel, but, you know, when there's the kind of concern about whether children who are born will be immune or not, mm-hmm. uh, they explain, like, science fiction style, exactly how the virus works. Uh-huh. They're like, it's a mutagen that, that transforms multiple times until it breaks down your immune system. Mm-hmm. It's a really weird thing that feels like a note in editing where it's like, do you think maybe you should talk a little bit more about the virus? And Stephen King was like, talk about it. I'll explain it in minute detail at the end when no one cares anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Now that this is literally no longer a problem for any of us. (laughs) Uh, And it's just like some like family practitioner who figures this out. (laughs) It's not like it's a scientist who's like, "Uh, well, excuse me, uh, the way the virus works. Um. Anyway, it's weird. Okay, well, that's the end of the book. Or the end of the episode. Yeah. (sighs) Michael, should people read The Stand?
0: That is... I mean, it's not a question I can answer with regard to the text that we have just been discussing because it is a text that is not available. Um, Correct. And also, as I said, like reading The Stand is in some ways, I think critical to understanding the larger deal of Stephen King and his body of work. Right. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. If you're not interested in doing that, I don't think you necessarily need to read the stand. And at the same time thinking about what will the discussion will have in a couple of years when we talk about the complete and uncut text, there is some stuff in, uh, the, the full version of this book, uh, that I like, there's a lot of stuff that in the full version that I am glad is not here. Right. It is stuff that could have stayed out. Um, But the things that you were talking about at the beginning with uh, the, the, the scene that one of the scenes that people ask about is uh, in the complete and uncut text, there is an entire section that is about all the people who were immune to the super flu, who then end up dying in other ways, right? Just like cosmic accidents work out that they die in other ways. And it is cool as hell like yeah. it gives you such a sense of like the scope of this uh world that actually is you know the scope of the of the original text is is pretty big but like Stephen King does for the entire like continental united states in the stand what he did for Salem's lot in Salem's lot like there are parts of that book that are like uh Um, It it even goes back to Kerry where he'll have like uh, here is like the text of a flyer put up on a university campus, right. Mm -hmm. To show like the sort of the, the civil breakdown as like student groups start mobilizing against the government. Um, And it's just like, you know, it like one section will just be like uh, graffiti scrawled across the, the front of a church in Atlanta, Georgia. Right. Um, There's all this really cool stuff that happens in the stand, that I think is like, you know, the the stuff that Stephen King does and does really well. Do I think that just a, a random person with no great investment in Stephen King needs to necessarily read this book? I'm not convinced. I think you can get a better sense for like the good parts of Stephen King without having read this.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think this is well, as you said, people can't read the cut version. Mm hmm. I would say, but but if you were thinking, should I spend forty dollars to read a paperback of the cut version? I would say no. I, I would say that I think it it is not a lesser work. I think it's tighter in a lot of different ways, obviously than the uh, than the uncut version. But I I don't think that there is. It's not a miss compared to his other novels so far, mm-hmm. but it's the weakest I think, other than Rage, right, which is his own thing, a Bachman mm-hmm. book, but. I I think compared to the other four mainline, you know, Stephen King things that we have read, it is the
0: least of those four. Actually, I need to revise sort of my statement Mm -hmm. because my partner has read one Stephen King book and it is The Stand and she liked it pretty well. And uh, she, you know, sort of does this with all the kind of caveats that we would probably add, which is that like. It is super irritating to her. Like the the entire like whenever a, a woman character appears, there is some comment about her body. And so these are things that like really annoy her about Stephen King. Uh, but she was invested in the stand, right? Like the stand sort of pulled her along. Um, and she really liked a lot of stuff here. So maybe, maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe the stand is the good Stephen King to read. <laughs>
1: Uh, my wife has read one Stephen King novel, and it's this one. So, uh, and I think she liked it too. It was several years ago. But, so yeah, I don't know. I I mean, I think I think it's because it's a, a particular kind of thing, right? It's not a horror novel by any measure of, of you know, I think, I guess theoretically you could construe it that way, but I would not call this mm-hmm. a horror novel. I would call it a thriller. And I think that it works in the same way that other popular thrillers do. I mean, I think that, uh, that the there's things in here for you and I to enjoy. Maybe not so much in this version, uh, in the cut version, but the uncut version, I think there's a lot of things that we enjoy that are Kingian kind of things. But I think that for most people, it works like picking up a random Tom Clancy book works or picking up the Da Vinci Code uh, is maybe a bigger thing, right? There's a big mystery. There's interesting characters. There's a lot of people to keep track of. You're kind of rewarded for keeping track of them all because interesting things do happen to them. Um, and it's a, you know, it's pitched in the same way that those books are all pitched, which is that it's pitched to a wide audience. Everyone can have an opinion. There's a universal, you know, and saying that right now, recording this right now, this has a bigger twinge to it, right? But there is a universal reaction mm-hmm. to a pandemic, right? And I think that for the the bones of a thriller novel, that is a really strong hook, And, uh, especially the uncut version spends so many pages, spends 400 pages talking about that, uh, part of the, the kind of world and building out that world and doing all that cool stuff that you were talking about with it. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot here that is hooky for a reader, a general reader that is not hooky in a uniquely Stephen Kingy kind of way. I think if you're interested in the just King things project, this is maybe not the book to go to, uh, first, I wouldn't say. Uh, But if you're interested in just reading an accessible Stephen King book, then it is is also
0: very long
1: (laughs) because I would say it's oh, God, it's it's very long. Yeah, Um, but easy to read. Uh, You know, you're not you're not it, it moves pretty quick. Even if the even if a lot of that movement is just churning, you know, spinning wheels, <laughs> the wheels are moving. Um, yeah, and, the, and they the, feel like it. it
0: is, in fact, in terms of length, in terms of like straight up word count, it is comparable in length to the entirety of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, but the benefit it has over the Lord of the Rings is that most of those words are not dedicated to giving you like the history of specific forests and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. Right. It is it is a. Um, pure plot in, in kind of that sense, right? It's, it's characters doing things.
1: Yep. But, uh, weirdly enough, uh, no one flies on the back of an Eagle (laughs) to finish the thing.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah. So, uh, that was our marathon of the stand and we'll be revisiting it again, eventually. Uh, but next time we will be reading our second Bachman book, which is the long walk from 1979.
1: Hmm, that's interesting. I, so I remember really liking this book. I've read it, I think one time, Uh uh, but I haven't gone back to reread it.
0: I was going to say basically the exact same thing, which is I have read The Long Walk once and I remember it working really well for what it is. It's a, it's a much smaller novel, a dystopian uh, science fiction-y thriller. Um, And I am really interested, especially since the first Bachman book was just so very, very bad. I'm interested in seeing how this one holds up. Yeah, I'm curious. We will, uh, we'll find it out. Uh, until then, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Range Touch. Uh, you can also support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash range touch, uh, If you back us there, you'll get access to uh, various, various cool little things. Uh, Most appropriate for you if you're listening to this is probably if you back us at the $5 level, you will get our Just King Things bonus episodes where Cameron and I uh, watch adaptations of Stephen King stories or novels and discuss them. Uh, We will be discussing for this bonus episode of the 1994 miniseries of The Stand. And we will have, as, as alluded to a couple times, a special guest. Do we want to name that special guest here in the episode? or mm, yeah sure it who's naming who's naming them who
1: i can do it this very moment okay, it's it. kirk, hamilton, oh, of, kirk uh,
0: hamilton yeah of um triple click and
1: uh strong songs mm-hmm. uh, for a podcaster extraordinary music person
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: video game also person
0: Yeah, yeah, no, turns out, turns out Kirk's a big Stephen King fan, or like a big The Stand fan, is that? A big
1: The Stand fan, yeah, I believe, so we're gonna, we're gonna work that out, I've purposely avoided having more elaborate conversations with him about it, but he has been updating me kind of regularly about uh, his opinions on the miniseries, so we're we're gonna, I think that's gonna be, you know, it's in the future, we haven't recorded it yet, but I think... That's also going to be a pretty long episode. Yeah. I mean, the, the miniseries is six hours long, so. <laughs> um, and I have to watch it twice. <laughs> because for you, this is what the Patreon money goes to. I want to take a second to talk about that. We're, you know, we're already close to four hours, so we might as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's what your Patreon money is going to. So I have a DVD of The Stand miniseries, and it does not have the commentary on it. And I looked it up and I found out there is a commentary track for it featuring Mick Garris, featuring Stephen King, featuring Rob Lowe and some other people also. And I said, you know what? I'm going to need, I got to get that commentary so I can give, you know, the people when we did the Shine miniseries, I listened to the commentary for that. And people, I think, enjoyed that information. And I think it gave us a lot to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think I thought I've got to get this director Mick Garris commentary. So I bought that Blu-ray. Uh, which has the commentary on it. And then I realized, oh my gosh, but what if I want to play it on my computer and take a video of the commentary to show people on Twitter? What will I be able to do? How will I be able to do that? I got to buy a Blu-ray player for my (laughs) computer, so I bought a Blu-ray player. That's where your Patreon money is going to, is uh, making sure that we can uh, access the Stephen king as accurately as humanly possible. So thanks so much for uh, the people who back us. Remember, $5 a month gets you access to the Just King Things bonus episodes. And um, uh, you you should do that right now at patreon.com slash rangedtouch.
0: Yeah, you can also find videos that we do, video content, uh, Let's Plays and streams, the show that I mentioned earlier, Too Much Future, our Fallout show. You can find that on uh, youtube.com slash rangedtouch. And you can find me on Twitter at WarrenIsDead. And you can find Cameron at C. Kunzelman. Anything else you want to say? You want to take us out? Remember, Michael,
1: we're doing this for the world, but we're also doing it for Steve.